You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Is this your dog? What does it look like, my zebra? What do you call it? Irresponsible. He's ten minutes late for rehearsal. Out, Sir Lawrence. Lieutenant Reno is adapting Shakespeare's plays for dogs. We were as well a fucking headache, but goddamn it, somebody's got to do it. It's okay, it's alright, you're safe here. I'm a psychiatrist. Can you tell me what happened? Can you tell me your name? How are you feeling? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. The patrons have made us watch a three-hour film, but we're going to get to the bottom of the JFK conspiracy. So I think it's important work. <laughs> so join the please. <laughs> yes, and we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we are officially in our fifth year of bonus episodes. Technically our sixth year. We have five full years of bonus episodes uh, mm -hmm. waiting for you. It's like 130 plus as well as 40 plus bonus transmissions where we talk about new release genre films, which we just did on all of the new January horror out there. Knock the Cabin, Megan, things of this nature. Um, skin a Marink, of course. Uh, so if you haven't made oh, the yeah. jump yet, patreon.com slash Podcast. And speaking of which, we did have a lot of people who made the jump this week. So we're going to give them their shout outs real quick here. We have uh, Sergio Lobo Navia signed up for $5 a month. We had Simon uh, Meaton. We had Kevin Moon, Jonathan uh, Gallardo, uh, CAB, uh, Michael Lane. Uh, we had Adam Marinus Diager, Jason Neiman. Uh, Uberland Gizbar. This is the, once again, the Josh <laughs> mispronounces your name live on air challenge. Uh, Trey <laughs> Bartley, uh, Megan, um, Christopher Luke, Bobby Crowley, TK, Patuya H, uh, Aki, Mark Kansteiner, uh, Michael McGrath, Ethan Johnson, Brian Davis, Ravenick. Wow, we had a lot. DS. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, last but not least, we had both Frog Town and FD sign up for an entire year of the show at the annual tier, which you can get a discounted rate for if you sign up for that. So thanks so much to uh, all of you folks for um, doing that. Hope you're enjoying all of those bonus episodes and we appreciate the support. Yeah, thank you. That's the uh, one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I see the stats, I see you right now listening on both those platforms. Uh, scroll down to the very bottom, give us a good old rating and review. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. And the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that basically put on anything that you can think of. And you guys have thought of a lot of things. You've bought pens, you've bought pillows, you've bought hoodies, you've just bought posters you can uh, find that link in uh, the description of this episode as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com for anyone interested but that being said that i think wraps it up for the intro welcome back to another week as always i am your host josh lewis and joining me also as always is my co-host 
Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed would have uh, heard from us, and we would have had our last main feed episode of January, where we broke Uh. down... The entire career of the muscles from Brussels himself, Jean-Claude Van Damme, <laughs> and we wrapped things off by watching him set his theatrical career on fire, <laughs> experimenting with two more Hong Kong directors that he brought over uh, to have their American debuts. We talked Maximum Risk from 1996, directed by Ringo Lam, as well as Knockoff, 1998, directed by Choi Hawk, his second collaboration, the other one being Double Team, which they did just, I believe, a year before. Uh, and uh, if you didn't catch up with that episode or watch Knockoff, please go back and do so. Yeah, do it. <laughs> uh, one of the craziest Jean-Claude films. He doesn't remember it because he was so high on cocaine. <laughs> and the movie itself is very playfully pr- basically d- admitting that it is itself a, a, a knockoff of an American action film, just abstracted into insanity. Uh, Sparks does the credit song for the film um it's insane Ooh. yeah it's good i'm gonna miss van damme just so much i've been thinking about yeah him, you know <laughs> yeah actually we we were like you know what we're gonna miss van damme so much that we didn't even let january end so last week <laughs> over on the patreon for the bonus listeners uh we did an encore january episode where we broke the rules because it's the fifth anniversary of the show and we thought whatever we can talk about some 2010s movies for the you know for the first time so we broke the rules and did a movie that came out after the year 2000 and we did a double feature of van damme and dolph lundgren's direct-to-video universal soldier sequels we talked about universal soldier regeneration from 2009 and universal soldier day of reckoning from 2002 12, both directed by Peter Hyams's son, who did Time Cop and Sudden Death, named John Hyams, and both just two of the best direct-to-video yep. action films I've ever seen that are They're so awesome. gruesome. They're basically horror films, and in terms of martial arts combat on like an eight million dollar budget, you can't ask for better. I don't. I literally don't think there's been better. <laughs> Yeah, it's unreal. And it was uh, fun to talk about Scott Atkins, too, because we never get to do that outside the bonus transmissions, I suppose. Yes, of all his new direct-to-video action films. Yes, it was very cool seeing Van Damme pass the uh, kicking torch over to Mr. Scott Atkins in Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Um, Yeah, which is basically the uh, direct-to-video Blade Runner sequel. (laughs) It's insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but uh, yeah, if you haven't heard that episode, patreon.com slash podcast. That was last week's bonus episode, and that is that was the wrap-up to January officially. We will see our man, the muscles from Brussels, another time, I'm sure. Uh, but that brings us into this week, where we are going to resume regularly scheduled programming, uh, and we are very excited to do so with a very special first-time guest joining us, one we've planned to have on for quite a while, and uh, who alongside former guest of the pod, Noah Colwin, is the co-host and producer for one of my personal favorite podcasts, Blowback, Uh, but he's also a really incredible musician, and from what I've heard from some mutual friends, he is also quite the cinephile, and uh, that (laughs) guest is Brendan James. Brendan, how you doing, man? Hi there, fellas. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. I'm very excited. I'm a long-time listener, first-time sleazy person. 
<laughs> no, we're we're very excited. It's very funny. We've had obviously Will Menneker on a couple times on the show, and uh, we had Noah on as well. And every, both times that they wrapped up their episodes, they were like, "Wow, I had a really great time." You know, we'd here's what we'd maybe talk about next time. And they both ended independently of each other. Get Brendan on the show. They were like, they were like, Brendan has secretly has like the same taste as you guys and you really need to talk to him. And I was like, okay, okay, fine. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm the shy one. I, okay. I pay them, I pay them to go out and tell people that, uh, but then people always come around and now, now you'll hear, now you hear the, the ringmaster behind all of them. That's yeah, right. no, we're 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 very excited, and and Brendan, as the uh, as the show goes, we have the guests bring on the double feature this week, and I know we kind of went back and forth talking about a mm -hmm. a, a couple different that we were going to do at some point. But what was the double yeah. feature that we landed on, and why did you pair these two films together? The double feature today, folks, will be the Ninth Configuration by William Peter Blatty and The Sender. These are this is a double feature of psychodrama of psycho thrills and psycho chills. One is overtly supernatural, <laughs> the other only latently supernatural, and it'll be up to you, your listeners, to decide for yourselves which is which. Uh, the power of nightmares, the power of faith, God, mm -hmm. man, and the deep, dark corners of the human mind. If you have a squeamish stomach, nay, if you have a squeamish psyche, <laughs> Turn back now because only terror lies ahead. That was yes. good. You should come uh, for Spooktober and do our intro or something. That was yeah. Uh, you should. Love to. We, we'll just yeah. We're like just gonna hire right you there. to ghostwrite all of our intros from now on. That's I, just jotted, I just jotted that down when you told me to write something. I, I, I think my real calling would have been like uh, one of those guys who like a like Goulardi, like one of those uh, hosts and on a midnight public access, uh, you know, uh, a program where they, they run old B movies. That's, that's my, that's my real, it's my real dream. You could have done it, man. No, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, very excited. Cause I had, uh, actually not seen either of these films, even though the ninth configuration had been on my mind since I first saw that poster art on the, oh, yeah at the video store when I was like a kid, I was like, what the hell yeah. is that? Can they put that in a movie? You know, like Jamie Don't and I have talked about that? it a couple times we come from Catholic backgrounds. So I was like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. And also what <laughs> is like, I'm what a, would be I'm, the I'm context fellow, of this image? I, and, and I, and I should say I'm a fellow Catholic, uh, my, Ooh, myself or a fellow lapsed, nice. uh, you know, I mean, I yeah. lapsed, lapsed the day I was born, but I, w I did grow up in a Catholic household. So the Blatty verse is uh, a personal fascination of mine as well. I'm sure we'll get to. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really stoked. Yeah, we are definitely going to be talking about some psychodramas that take place inside mental institutions and lots of visions and lots of dreams. And yeah, yeah and, and I was excited for The Sender as well, just because I had never seen, other than Battlefield Earth, I had never seen a Roger <laughs> Christian film. So this is our first going to be our first time ever mentioning Roger Christian's name on this film. And I got to say, I was surprised. The movie's not bad. If any, if you've only yeah. ever seen Battlefield Earth, you might have the wrong impression of this guy. And I'm excited. I still to haven't kinda... seen it, so it was kind of interesting for me to watch this one as the first one. I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. And then I know yeah. the, the next one I'll probably the, watch is Battlefield Earth. So the rehabilitation starts here. It starts today. It starts right <laughs> yeah. now. Roger Christian. He made a couple good movies, and yep. Uh, maybe we'll figure out why he and how he made that. <laughs> 
that Scientology movie <laughs> and made it in one of the most uh god i mean i don't visually mind-boggling ways possible oh my yeah. god we'll talk about it we'll talk about it because it, it there are a couple there are a couple dutch angles in the sender and i i got i, I clenched my my chair for a second you're where are the dreadlocks they're coming yeah yeah i was th- i thought the band uh, the band corn was going to show up any second as the alien race that has enslaved humanity but it didn't happen in the sender that was later <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, that being said, I think we are going to jump right into it here. So let's start things off. Let's talk about the ninth configuration. 10 to the 243rd power, billions of years. And I find that far, far more fantastic than simply believing in a God. All right, we are talking the ninth configuration, also known as Twinkle Twinkle Killer (laughs) Kane, the 1980 psychological drama film that, of course, being written, produced and directed by William Peter Blatty also has some horror and some science fiction and some satirical elements thrown on there. And it is based on his own source novel of the same name and his second installment in what he called the Faith Trilogy, sandwiched in between The Exorcist and Legion which he would later adapt into Exorcist 3 10 years later. Uh, and the ninth configuration, also worth noting, and I'm sure Brendan will tell us since he's pretty well versed in the Bladdyverse, uh, that it is also technically based on a novel written before any of those novels or films in mm-hmm. 1966, which is where it gets its other title from, Twinkle, Twinkle. <laughs> Killer Kane. Uh, but the last time we did talk about uh, Blatty was we were talking Exorcist 3 uh, with our good friend Will Meneker, who uh, cheated Brendan on yep. the double feature I think he was hoping for this we week. We haven't spoken <laughs> since uh, that episode. A friendship has been ruined. Uh, yeah. Congratulations, guys. <laughs> yes, uh, we, we did. Uh, and un- unfortunately, that was actually our fault because I think we went to him on that one because he really wanted to talk about Exorcist 3 and I don't think he was sure exactly what the pairing was. And we were like, well, what about Psycho 2? Because we wanted to talk about like... Oh, I love Psycho 2 as well. I know. It yeah. was two of my favorite movies. I, I have a Psycho 2 <laughs> note here, though. There's a Psycho 2 connection, uh, however Ooh. slight, here as well. I don't know. If, at I least know in it. my mind. Okay, um, but but uh, it's worth noting on Exorcist 3, that with that film in particular, we were really impressed, and you can go back and hear us talk about Blighty for the first time. We went a little bit over his career, um, but we were just really impressed at how well he got, like, the tone of evil in corruption in that film in a way that yeah. it kind of feels like the slow acting poison that you can see on the actors' faces, and both Exorcist films... Um, are very writerly and conversational in a way that this film, The Ninth Configuration, is too. But it, it just oh, yeah. it has such a lonely, sad mood to it, and very it very palpably captures how frail and vulnerable kind of our existence is within this very biblically destructive and vengeful and, and painful world where demons are going to feed off yeah. our shock and despair and you yeah. know that 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 stuff and so you know it's it's very grounded and bleak and yeah. tangible for for Blatty and but really based in people talking with one another and especially in that film George C. Scott and Brad Dourif have some amazing oh. conversations with one another as well as oh, yeah. you know 
he's got he had some horror chops there's great scares in that film i remember brendan and i once going back and forth on twitter over that uh that shot of the woman crawling on the ceiling behind george c scott's head just what an image i mean that became a sort of canned um maneuver in later years you know in recent there's I think there is actually a TV show called Legion, right? Or some movie movie called Legion, you know, not not mm-hmm. any relation to the Blatty thing. It's some kind of, yes. you know, just half-assed attempt at like a demon, creepy demon movie. And old ladies with demons inside of them is a big thing like into the 2000s, you know, era. Like little kids mm-hmm. being demonic was always, was always a thing, but old people uh, suddenly doing acrobatic demonic things um, I think that was pioneered um, in the, la- the, the, the film language that we are almost kind of used to now. Uh, I think that was pioneered by, by Blatty in The Exorcist 3. Well, more and- people should have taken uh, nuns uh, taking shears uh, at people and Good doing Lord. huge, uh, <laughs> huge yeah. like slam zooms on it. <laughs> well, he, he, he was ahead of his, he was ahead of the curve in so many ways. Actually, what, what I find so fascinating, just as a general observation at the start, uh, now that we've mentioned Exorcist 3, um, what I find fascinating about these movies and, uh, and like the fact that Blatty was a, you know, uh, I don't think it's, it's uh, unfair to say like a reactionary level uh, Catholic uh, mm-hmm. writer, but even non-horror guys, like say famous examples like uh, G.K. Chesterton or Evelyn Waugh, whatever you want to say, they really make Catholicism look creepy. It's mm-hmm. scary. You know, mm-hmm. even even in, in this film, in Ninth Configuration, it's not the exorcist, but there's this eerie menace to the whole religious angle. There's something unsettling about it. And to me, I think it's reflective of their more um, unstated worldview. Uh, guys like Blatty, you know, they're kind of, they kind of enjoy, I think deep down, they enjoy the idea that this stuff is anachronistic and, and creepy. They're sort of these long suffering martyrs in their mind. They're in the oppressive secular world. They're, they're, they're the last of a dying breed. And they're almost saying, you know, look how fucked up my religion is. You know, I think, I think it might be a little too hardcore for you, man. You know, maybe if you want to believe in religion, maybe you'd be better off with some of that Unitarian stuff or just, just be agnostic. Cause this, this Catholic stuff, this is, this is the I real deal. Every you know, day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, like leave, leave this stuff to the, to the real professionals. Cause it's scary. Yeah. The people and, who have um, actually gone through the ringer, like he did. Cause looking up like a quick, anyone who looks up a quick biography on Blatty will find that, uh, he, he apparently, uh, grew up in basically like intense poverty with his yeah. single mother, who was yep. the uh, niece of a Bishop who got him a scholarship into a Jesuit school. Um, but that dude moved around like crazy. He was incredibly lonely and apparently eventually did, and I think what I'm assuming he got some experience out of and turned into these two novels that became the ninth configuration. Uh, he spent some time at, as an army psych, uh, yep. uh operations. Um, yep. although I did find it funny that his pathway out of all of that, cause it sounds like the really bleak upbringing of a guy who would make a great, like Paul Schrader character or something. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, oh, apparently you know, the he, you know, you know, the way he got out, right? Yeah, he, he won $10,000 on a Groucho Marx quiz show. That's right. That's which, right. And, and then quit that, his job and just started writing comedies and satire novels. And that was it, which right. is where Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane came, 
came from, which he wrote in 1966 and would later rewrite into the ninth configuration 12 years. Do you want to pick later. up on that now as background or, sh- or should we? I, I um, would. Yeah, no, let's yeah. let's uh, because Jamie and I are unfamiliar with Blatty actually as a novelist. So maybe before we jump in, let's do a full overview. Give us give us the breakdown on what went ha- down between the 1966 novel yeah. and the 1978 novel, other than, of course, him winning an Oscar for writing <laughs> The Exorcist, which well, is probably well, one of yes. the few things we do know. <laughs> yes, I think obviously most famously he he is known as the author of The Exorcist and, and the writer of the screenplay. Um, and then to a lesser degree, he's probably known and people of our generation, he's known as the author of Legion and the director of The Exorcist 3, the adaptation of Legion. And that would be you know, powerful enough, a, uh, a resume, but, uh, as hopefully many of your listeners will now learn the ninth configuration is a really, really lovely. And, um, and I think quite, um, uh, both unsettling and beautiful contribution to film that he's given us, uh, that came out of not one, but two novels, uh, two novels, two, two attempts at the same subject. Uh, I am such a fan of of this movie that I saw a long time ago that I've read both versions of the novel, which are very different. The first attempt was, as you mentioned before, uh, called Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, which was published, I believe, in 1966. And it was a comedy novel. He, as you, as we just went over, he actually began as a comedic novelist um, and thought of himself as maybe, I'm sure, something like a uh, Kingsley Amos style author if people know who that is he's martin amos's dad a far superior novelist to martin amos also um and he thought he'd be writing comedies uh catholics have have a knack for that kind of thing evelyn waugh who i've already mentioned uh wrote a bunch of really funny novels i think it's something about that cynicism about the modern world you know that gives them a leg up in identifying what's fun for satire despite their hang-ups uh (laughs) about uh many social issues um but twinkle twinker killer kane uh, is very farcical. And if you read it, you will recognize things in the film uh, Ninth Configuration and indeed the novel in which it's based on, which is a retooling of Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. But something about it, uh, Blatty himself described it as kind of unfinished, kind of a bag of ideas. And um, there's something to that. I mean, it, it, is, uh, it is a more lighthearted treatment of the same events which is funny because it still ends in the guy killing himself as a testament <laughs> to Christ. Um, but it also has a B plot that is sort of in, in a fun way, almost kind of this unfocused, weird second story happening about a general and a Senator who are um, uh, trying to basically plan uh, a new war. If, if I recall correctly um, hmm. and, and they're kind of bickering over the hardware and the technology, the, the, technological aspects of modern war um and it it gives a it gives an even stronger sense of like an anti-war kind of you know because the catholics again they, they have a lot of baggage but uh, american <laughs> catholics are known to be anti-war um mm. the vietnam war there were a lot of priests at the forefront of um the protest movement and i think i think i'm reading blatty right in 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 uh detecting some sympathy for all of that and so in the 60s you know, that was something that was a lot more present in the original version. However, uh, it's, you know, it's not an amazing novel. And I think he himself recognized that and said when he started to shop it as a uh, film, he rewrote the entire thing into what we recognize as the ninth configuration. And um, what's funny about how it became a film 
considering everything we've just discussed and Blatty's general ideological makeup, is that what in Blatty, what, what he called himself a bizarre happenstance, the Pepsi-Cola company wanted a factory to open up in Hungary. Now, this is in the 70s, and Hungary was still a part of the communist bloc. Yep. But there was some, you know, They should commercial. have started a new brand. Coke got around that by uh, making Fanta. Well, Fanta. Yeah. Yeah. Fanta for the Nazis, exactly. Yep. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, Hungary, um, we, you know, then, and there were joint productions, actually, between the West and the uh, communist bloc um, in my in the third season of Blowback, actually, in a bonus episode, we talk about the North Koreans doing joint productions with Germans and Italians, for example. And so Pepsi-Cola wanted a factory to open up in Hungary and the Hungarians, the commie, the commie hung- Hungarians, uh, as a part of this deal that they were open to, they just wanted uh, a couple perks like um, a production to be funded through their sort of um, foundering studio system in Hungary. And they said, look, well, we're happy to do some business with Pepsi, but can you bring some other stuff uh into the pipeline, like, you know, you fund a lot of stuff. I, I'm Mac and me, right? That was like a Coca-Cola funded movie. We all know mm-hmm. and, and love. They were like, let's do a little bit of, let's do a little bit of that uh, on the other side of the so-called Iron Curtain. And so of all the films, <laughs> this creepy farcical meditation on God and man and death written by and directed by William Peter Blatty got to shoot an incredibly Gothic, uh, Hungarian castle because of the Pepsi company, (laughs) which is funded by the Pepsi Cola company. And of all the writer directors, it is the arch Catholic William Peter Blatty giving business to the communist Hungarian government. So, uh, that, that, that is a incredible circumstances. It's a wonderful (laughs) circumstance that, you know, it, it, it's what brought the novel, because uh, I think he was in talks to to make this into a film, and financing went in and out for a long time. And actually, when well, we yeah, he, he was cat- supposed to do it before The Exorcist, which is how he met uh, <laughs> William Friedkin, because exactly. uh, William Friedkin wanted to direct this before The Exorcist, but oh. no studio was interested based on the material at all. They were like, "What the? F-? They're they were like, <laughs> what, what is, is this, this like weird mix of like Mash and like Catch Twenty Two, but yep. like it's also like a horror yep. film, or like you know we don't really exactly understand." And so as a result, they went, they parted ways and ended up coming back and doing the exorcist instead. And they revisited doing it again after, um, the fact, but, but, but again, even rewriting it into the ninth configuration and winning an Oscar, he still had to put up half the money himself and actually did have to mortgage one of his houses to do it. So half the money is his and half the money is Pepsi. (laughs) Well, it, it took the perfect political unity of, uh, communism and the Pepsi Cola company to bring this vision <laughs> to life, which is bring something that we should all, we should all think about uh, going forward, not only in terms of art, but in terms of what, what we really need to accomplish in, in, in the socioeconomic sphere. So yes, it was, it's, it's, um, the, the novel, um, but both novels are good. I, I actually had a better time reading Twinkle, Twinkle Killer Kane just because it was new, like the ninth configuration novel. It's essentially the screenplay of the film. You know, it's, it's basically gotcha. the movie. Um, so if you've seen, the I movie, imagine when he was writing that as a novel, he had already adapted his own yeah. screenplay that by that point. So he probably yeah. was pretty comfortable. You it know, was part and parcel. 
Yeah, it was exactly. part and parcel of, of the film project. But uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane. I would say if anyone's curious, if if they go off and watch the movie, or if they've already seen it but they never got it, you can buy it for two bucks on uh, what's the one that's not been uh, absorbed by Amazon? Uh, uh, Libris. Abe Books is now Amazon, but Libris, or uh, pardon me, maybe Powell's. You can find Twinkle, Twinkle. Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane and it's it's a very interesting little piece and it, it kind of is a bonus feature to the to the ninth configuration. Yeah, yeah well, because I was going to say, um, oh, go ahead. I was just uh, I think Blatty even mentioned that he prefers the that first edition now just because I think he said something after the like fact, the, yeah 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 after the fact he said something like he felt the the comedy kind of naturally flowed through him a little bit it was like more of a natural yeah. thing for him I guess a creative What's, process. It's interesting because you can actually see in the film the bits that ended up from both the original novel and the revamped novel. And mm. I think the film is actually a perfect balance of comedy and, um, and, and, and drama. Mm-hmm. And in a way that maybe both novels were kind of the lopsided um, extremes. Uh, yeah, so ab- he, absolutely. Because I, 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 I was going to ask you, because like, we are going to... For anyone who hasn't seen the ninth configuration, I am going to briefly bring up our kind of uh, w- w- what it loosely is about in the logline. I am kind of yeah, curious please. as we go through it, some of the differences between maybe what um, he did in Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. But the for anyone who hasn't seen it, the ninth configuration stars Stacey Keach as a troubled military uh, psychiatrist named Colonel Vincent Kane, who uh, is taking command of an army mental asylum filled with uh, various eccentric soldier patients, including one. Captain Billy Cutshaw, played in this film by Scott Wilson, who's also in Exorcist 3, but he's also really amazing. Yeah. And for anyone who's seen it in Richard Brooks's uh, In Cold Blood uh, oh, adaptation, wonderful. where he plays one of the killers. Um, and uh, he is playing an astronaut who uh, basically snaps and has an existential crisis seconds before a, uh, a mission to the moon. And the movie from there kind of becomes a series of uh, interesting sort of like thoughtful sanity question questioning conversations between uh, Kane and all of his patients and they discuss things like science and, and faith and uh, as you can kind of imagine from the tagline uh, how do you fight a war called madness uh, mm-hmm. there is a, a couple questions about uh, Kane's own sanity that uh, come across and you can tell a little bit that it seems or it, it seems at least been slightly repurposed in the ninth configuration version post exorcist, this almost seems adapted from that moment in the exorcist where Reagan tells that astronaut in her, at her mom's fancy party, yes. uh, you're, you're going to die up there and then that pisses is, on the carpet. That is theorized. I can't, I can't recall if Blatty ever remarked on this, um, but that is theorized. I, I'm pretty sure they're the same name. I'm pretty sure they're both captain Billy. Uh, Kutcha. Are, yep. That the, the astronaut in the exorcist who was told you're going to die up there by, by possessed Reagan is Billy Cutshaw in the ninth configuration. Now the, the, you know, the believability of that is pretty high. Um, we live in the world of the, uh, the Marvel cinematic universe <laughs> now. So, you know, I, I, I think it's fun Blatty-verse. to, um, yeah, the, the Blatty verse, man. I mean like, and, and really the, the themes and the, um, atmosphere of both movies are, 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 are related as well. So I, I say, absolutely. That's Billy Cutshaw. 
Yeah, well, yeah. well it, it really does feel like he took like material he wrote before The Exorcist and he was like, OK, now this is a sequel to The Exorcist because I'm annoyed that they made a second Exorcist film with John Borman and I hate it. And so it felt like instead of, you know, b- before Legion, uh, if, if you like Blatty, I imagine, thinks that this is the actual Exorcist 2 and then Exorcist 3 kind of comes That's after. That's very interesting. Did, did you guys ever do The Exorcist 2 on your show yet? Yeah. Uh, yes, we we actually have covered all three Exorcists because I actually oh, we cool. we, di- we didn't hate the Exorcist two as much as everyone else did, but I totally understand why Blatty hates it and why other people yeah. hate it. Like Borman like has a way dream. more optimistic <laughs> view of. Uh, well, because he, he went into it literally being like, well, the, the Exorcist was way too cynical about religion. So I'm going to make like a weird ad- right, adventure right. movie. <laughs> uh, did you ever read on your show the quote from Friedkin about it? We might have, but I don't remember it now. Well, I, 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 I was, we were just talking about it. I love it so much. I looked it up here. Um, and honestly, Friedkin has a little bit of Trump in him when he's like putting <laughs> someone else down, when he's like on a rant, he, he, he can kind of sound like Trump, but I, I have the quote in front of me. Uh, let's hear it. if you don't mind, let's just, let's just see what William Friedkin had to say. Cause we're talking about a, after all the, the Blatty cinematic universe of exorcist three and, um, and, uh, ninth configuration Friedkin about exorcist two said it was horrible. It's just a stupid mess made by a <laughs> dumb guy, a really dumb guy, John Borman by name, somebody who should be nameless, but in this case should be named a horrible picture. And then he said, Friedkin later said that the sequel diminished the value of the original and called it quote, the worst piece of crap I've ever seen, and it's a freaking disgrace. And then he said, he later added, that film was made by a demented guy. So, uh, the Exorcist He was going too, off, dude. He had a lot of feelings he, I mean, about look, that. Can you blame him? Can, can you no. blame him? It's, it's not... I, I agree with you. I don't hate The Exorcist 2, but like, anytime someone says, oh, The Exorcist 3? Like, should I watch 2? I'm like, no. 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 Yeah. <laughs> no, you yeah, can skip you can it. Hundred percent. Totally. Honestly, I would I would go into the ninth um, configuration in instead because it's it is yeah. so interesting how so many of the same sort of concepts and almost just like images that get conjured into your mind thinking yep. of that pop up in here because he's taken that image from that he mentioned in the Exorcist of this astronaut yeah. seeing the well, loneliness of, of space and shot. dying up there. The, yeah, the first and then yeah, great shot of the movie. I mean, I guess I guess if we can get into the movie. Um, you know, there's Absolutely. that. There, so there's apparently like 18 versions of this movie. Um, the, Blatty kept cutting it up, and then there were like there's like one laser disc release, and then there's a VHS release, and blah blah blah. But um, the director's cut, so called, is what's available currently on Shutter and what's available on Blu-ray, and it's Blatty's yes. last word on it. Um, just just a moment to talk maybe about casting. Actually, um, I don't want to hijack the uh, the hosting duties here. No, but go I, for I it. have oh, a couple ahead. bits here, but. Um, apparently he originally, uh, wanted to cast Charlton Heston as mm-hmm. East Stacy Keach character, but Heston dropped out. Can you guys guess why? What do you think it was like too anti-religious somehow? Even with uh, the- no, he would never film a picture in a communist country. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so Blatty again, like, yeah, he was a Catholic, he was reactionary, but like the guy was, the guy was, um, Doing some things that a lot of Hollywood heavyweights like wouldn't even do, which is film behind the Iron Curtain. Um, Blatty also wanted Richard Pryor to be in it at one point, um, but the, the financing wasn't quite there when they were in touch. 
Um, so Richard Pryor might have been in the film. Then uh, Nicole Williamson, a Scottish actor, kind of a legendary Scottish actor, was going to be the Stacey Keach character. But there was more drama there because apparently they actually they had him in Budapest. Uh, but at his hotel or something, he was like wilding out and like being a drama queen and a, and a, a prima donna. And the Hungarians said, get this guy out of here. So he was out. And then Michael Moriarty was cast, was going to do the Scott Wilson part of Billy Cutshaw. But um, I have the Blu-ray and in some some kind of, you know, uh, featurettes, Blatty suggests that Moriarty was so, uh, let's say, um, out of his gourd on some substances we couldn't possibly uh, name that he couldn't really deliver his lines all that great. Oh boy. And he was oh, mumbling damn. a lot and Blatty started to freak out like, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So Scott Wilson and uh, con- considering Nicole Williamson's and then, and then uh, Michael Moriarty's dropping out, Scott Wilson and to an even greater degree, Stacey Keach were brought in really late. Uh, to their production, which I think makes their performances all the more impressive. So those were two yeah. kind of, uh, d- d- despite them being the the real heart of of the film, uh, they were actually late additions to the cast. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it, it was it was also cool that so many of the actors that he brought on were like people that he clearly met during the casting process of The Exorcist. Because like right. Jason sure. Miller from Reece. The Exorcist is in there. Ed Flanders was at one yep. point. I remember when we did The Exorcist, we talked about that he was considered for the same role at The Exorcist at one and point. And those are my two. Those are my two personal favorite actors in the film: is Ed Flanders and Jason Miller. I think that they're just oh, they're, they're amazing. So good. I mean, uh, the, the film has an amazing cast, but they stand out to me. Yeah, well, and and it's funny too because Stacy Keach was a, as well. I think that was why he ended up being someone that he had on file as right, someone who right. could call in to replace at the last minute. So like, was this is literally just Karis? was he a father he, he was a father Karis as well. Literally, all nice. three of them were considered for father Karis for the Exorcist. And he was like, well, what if I just cast all three? A movie, nothing but father Karis's in the main roles. The father <laughs> Karis is talking to one another. Yeah, bring in the all Karis's. Have, <laughs> all having philosophical <laughs> conversations about uh, Christianity and God and whatever else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, and 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 that that's what's so interesting I find about the ninth con- configuration is that it seemingly it is basically for for anyone who hasn't seen it it is like part you know sort of hysterical satirical sort of like asylum circus comedy of like a <laughs> yeah. world gone mad uh, within its own horrors and it's popular it's obviously populated by all of these traumatized vietnam vets almost doing mm-hmm. a little bit of a uh, the shock corridor or one flew yep. over the cuckoo's nest like yeah. series of interactions between them um but it, eventually and it's a pretty long movie it's about two hours it eventually kind of bleeds into this just very guilt-ridden very moody and hallucinatory psychodrama filled with in typical blatty fashion like theological monologuing and a very sideways approach to what christ-like martyrdom uh might feel like or look like from a a, a very troubled character and yeah it's just it's a making this movie a very cool mix of like influences from like army satires that were popular around the time that he would have wrote it in in the 60s um and then merging it with the more surreal psychological horror extremes that were kind of popping up into the 70s so you kind of get a mix of like two different universes here and then you also get the weird elements of the the production history that mean that yeah they shot in a creepy castle atmosphere as if it was like i don't know we talked about michael mann's the keep not that long ago i kind of thought about that a little bit there's even a couple Um, shots that almost look exactly like it like the one they they end with it and i think start with it where 
the the car is approaching the actual castle mm-hmm. and it's right at the yes. gate and you can see the castle in the background it's almost the same yeah. as the keep yeah. and i i thought that was awesome yeah, yeah yeah speaking of which i do want to talk about just that that opening montage in particular because it mm-hmm. opens on a song and jamie i don't know if you recognize because it's been so long since we talked about it but it opens on the song sand and tone by uh denny brooks denny brooks Yes, and it is a song I very closely associate, speaking of Paul Schrader earlier, with the 1977 uh, Schrader and John Flynn revenge movie, Rolling Thunder. Which it was is written, one of our, I believe it was written for Rolling Thunder. It was, and, and yeah. it's one of our very earliest episodes we ever did on this show, and it is uh, deployed in a similarly kind of uh ironically mournful way where it's got like the feel of the song is that it has this like nostalgic returning home kind of quality but written for rolling thunder where that character was tortured and traumatized into essentially kind of liking violence in that film or Mm -hmm. at least perversely Mm -hmm. seeing it as kind of like a bonding or a healing tool uh which he eventually goes on his revenge mission with uh, tommy lee jones in that film i I love his dead behind the eyes delivery of i'll just get my gear when they're you know lighting up at the idea of doing murder with one another but it's deployed in a very sort of similar way here where it's like over top of images of this really creepy asylum that the song does not fit at all <laughs> it's and, very uh, interesting it's it's not in the previous versions of the film the director's cut uh, so called interesting is, is the only one with that song at the beginning and uh for listeners i yeah i guess we kind of front loaded the the intrigue about the production but the the film is of course about a um uh, basically an asylum of uh, apparently insane Vietnam vets who are either faking to get out of the war or genuinely insane. And the duty of Stacy Keach's character, or at least we're told uh, Stacy Keach's character is a psychiatrist uh, to show up and fix them. Uh, and mm-hmm. the film was actually shot in Hungary as we've, as we've discussed, but the plot of the film is that it is actually a Boris Karloff style movie stars castle that has been rebuilt in California. Every brick has been moved. Maybe they don't even say this in the movie, but in the novel, this is made clear that Mm. the castle is, is was originally Hungarian or, you know, central or Eastern European. And it's been airlifted over to, to America. (laughs) Uh, because oh, this, wow. this is the property of it. Yeah, maybe this isn't said in the movie. I, I can't remember, actually. I don't recall this being said in the movie, but that's incredible if that's a detail that's included in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, because uh, I kind of got that feeling, at least with the fact that there's like a giant Bella Lugosi like painting that's hung up. Sorry, that's yeah. what I was thinking of. Not not Karloff, Lugosi. It's like, yeah, well, or, or, you know, yeah, exactly. Like, like pick, pick your old uh, Eastern European movie star, you know, um, they they transferred this castle over once they got big in Hollywood. And so it's been since abandoned and that's where these Vietnam vets are being held in an asylum. And, and so the, um, the intrigue and the atmosphere is very palpable. And that San Antone song by, um, what is it? Denny Brooks. Uh, Denny Brooks. Um, it's literally in the film locating you in California because you're looking at this Hungarian castle and you're like, Oh, this looks like <laughs> Hungary, Hungary. This looks like Hungary. Uh, but, but it's actually supposed to be oddly transplanted 
in yeah well i mean it's 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 very disorienting like visually and sonically and does lead you into the level of kind of distrust you're meant to have for what you're seeing and what you're hearing in the film because you're introduced to one of the patients is obviously the astronaut bill uh played by scott wilson as we've mentioned and just that moment of him staring out the window and dreaming about the moon landing that he might have been a part of if he didn't panic and abort the mission via this just incredible silhouette shot of a rocket love that That basically looks it looks like the moon is getting closer to it and slowly swallowing it and that yeah. overwhelming like sense of claustrophobia coming from these feelings of as brendan was just mentioning the you know the actual logistics of what's taking place here which is that all of these people are being locked in an experimental facility founded towards the end of the war in vietnam because yep. of the unusually high percentage of servicemen who suddenly as they put it manifested symptoms of psychosis and so the this institution was founded to study those men and many of the people are very cynical who work there and the staff and just assume well all of these guys were faking it just to get out of combat and there's a part where jason miller even brings up that sort of uh uh, ironically where he's just like we're all like hamlet who was faking being crazy just you know the we're all like hamlet i I mentioned you guys when we were recording that i have the movie kind of playing in the background just to kind of you know be in touch with it just came up about it and he's in there uh jason miller's character if people uh probably remember him as father karis and the exorcist he's wonderful in this movie and he is the inmate who is directing Shakespearean plays uh, acted out by dogs. (laughs) That is a good point in favor of his being genuinely insane. Uh, And there's a whole scene that's in the novels um, and it's transferred over into the film. It's one of the great comic moments where he is, no one misses a beat. No one questions why he's doing this. No one says, somebody has to do it. What are you talking? Yeah, he says somebody has to do it, and and he actually proposes of course. <laughs> one of the most profound moments in the film, which is uh, building off of his knowledge of Shakespeare and Hamlet. Uh, he's talking about what it means to um, pretend to be insane, to be insane, the difference between pretending to be insane and to genuinely be insane, the goals one might have in pretending to be insane, and that is directly uh, relevant not only to his 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 uh, plays starring the dogs, but in Billy Cutshaw and what Kane is trying to figure out about this astronaut, you know, is he afraid or is he genuinely insane? And what we may figure out later about Colonel Kane himself. Um, I just want to add just, just before we move on, uh, cause we're kind of in the plot now. I, I still don't want to, I also want to say Neville Brand plays Sergeant Groper. Who's kind of like the taskmaster at, at the, um, he gives them their, uh, their uh, sort of drill sergeant like, you know, overture at the beginning of the film before Colonel Kane shows up. He was mm-hmm. he was actually a highly decorated World War II soldier, had a Purple Heart and a Silver Star, oh, and he actually had a more heart wrenching opening monologue where he talks about buddies he knew who died, and he doesn't like Vietnam either. But you know, you step up, and that's you know, you guys are cowards for not stepping up. And it was cut because he's ultimately kind of a joke in the movie, and they felt like. Mm-hmm giving him too much uh, kind of, you know, heady, beautiful dialogue at the beginning would not allow you to giggle at him after you had heard this stuff, which is kind yeah, of yeah. made it a lot sadder. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Tom Atkins, the great Pittsburgh legend is in this movie of course, as, a, dude. as the guard Krebs. Um, and he's sort of quietly menacing in this. I don't know what you guys think about. It. What do you guys think about Tom Atkins in this? He's very mercurial around Kane. There's that scene where Kane kind of tells him, find me 
uh, Ed Flanders' character, find me uh, Fell, Dr. Fell, mm-hmm. next time you see him. And um, Tom Atkins, who's, you know, people may know from Halloween 3 and uh, a lot of other, you know, great genre movies um, and uh, The Fog. Um, the Fog, of course, yeah. He's yeah. sort of quietly, like he almost like isn't surprised by Kane at all. He's not like, seems like he knows exactly what's going on and maybe it's possible. No, he, 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 about- he seems kind of in the know or at least he's, yeah. he's feeling his way through it and he's taking his orders from him, but he kind of yeah. feels like he, he suspects something is, is going on there. And, and speaking of uh sort of, uh, sort of Sleazoid's legends who make their way into sort of side appearances in this also Joe Spinell, Spinell. Uh, from, from maniac. Oh, it yeah. just yeah. randomly shows up in this one as well. So he's I was like, wow, this is really populated. With is he hitters. the painter? Is he the guy who's painting? No, he's, He's, uh, he, he's, he's actually Miller. playing Lieutenant Spinell. Like he's so it's so oh, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I caught it because I was like, wait, they just literally said Joe Spinell's name in the film. I was like, <laughs> okay, there he is. Um, and also a very choice cameo, which we'll get which we'll get to right here because it's it's in this opening scene that you were talking about where he's giving um, where Neville Brand is. Uh, yeah. uh, talking um uh william peter blatty him himself shows up as uh one of the uh, patients uh briefly pretending to be uh the smoking medical officer from who is there right when stacy keach as kane pulls up and it's such a great moment because he's just like william peter blatty's there he's dressed in the doctor's uniform and he's like we really need your help. These guys are nuttier than a wagon load of, of pralines. And then, and then seconds later, after saying that, he is then hauled away in this really disorienting moment where like, you know, that was meant to be like a grounding. I'm talking to a colleague who's going to help me with these patients. And it turns out that that guy actually, you know, isn't. And uh, Ed Flanders is assumes his place as the actual chief of medicine is basically also yep. he shows up pantsless due to his pants being stolen by one of the patients. So it's a, it's a, <laughs> a hilariously bizarre moment where, yep. you know, you're just immediately off balance. You're like, who is yep. in fucking isn't in crazy. Charge? I mean, yeah. it is the old adage. <laughs> the inmates are in charge of the asylum you know and exactly Blatty, and it's great foreshadowing and yeah, is, is great no i was saying but Blatty's great he's great as an actor i, th- I think he's in the exorcist oh, yeah. for a second he's the guy who's the director of the movie that um that um uh alan burston is is, is in a movie I think she's so. an actress yeah i think but he he's he's got this really uh, classically, um, I don't actually know if he's Irish. I, I, I suppose, um, he might be Irish or Scottish, but he's got this deep, dark, uh, hollow face, you know, and he's very, he looks like a very serious guy, but he's, he's coming up with these snappy little lines of dialogue. He's, and, and you think that, yo, great. Here's the doctor. Finally, someone's in charge and <laughs> he knows exactly what to say. He's probably done this before. And then Ed Flanders walks in without pants and the guy without pants is the actual doctor. Uh, and the guy in the, in the full uniform is actually an insane person. It's just a wonderful, wonderful fake out at the very beginning. Yeah. I love the, the constant like sincerity that's put forward. And then it usually just it, the rug gets pulled out from under you. And honestly, the, uh, the character of Kane as well, like that, that there's the doctor scene in the intro. And then we were also talking about the, uh, uh, the Hamlet scene with, um, with Jason Miller. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he's having this philosophical discussion about the, uh, like, uh, faking, uh, your insanity. Um, and then after that, concludes he basically just turns to the to the dog and is just like see i told you this is how we're supposed to do it and then moves on with his production so it it, it feels (laughs) as if like you know we still had that that philosophical discussion with them but it it always seems to end or turn to a more ironic and 
like farcical sense. And it's I, I loved every moment that that happens in this movie. Well, it's yeah, so I, well I love all the early scenes of him just walking around observing and listening to their antics, like, yeah, like seeing that totally. dude, for example, who's just doing a blackface musical that will just show up for a few seconds or the other dude um, who uh, thinks that he can go, he can walk through walls, but he keeps <laughs> right. horribly failing at doing so. So he's bashing the walls with a hammer to punish the atoms as yes. he says it for blocking his way and blocking his abilities. And one of that guy's <laughs> other split personalities is that he just will dress around dress up like a nun and like walk around doing various activities as a nun throughout the castle and yep. What's interesting is you get these bizarre moments that basically turn this asylum into like a circus, like screwball comedy of pandemonium yep. with patients running in and out of rooms, doing crazy things that you don't. Cool. And, and, and it helps you because partially the experience is meant to be, is this guy going crazy? Is he just right. seeing these things or are these characters doing the things that they're actually doing? And mm -hmm. so you're immediately disoriented by that. But also the level of mood that he gives it is that it actually does feel like he's walking around like dracula's transylvanian yes. castle like just the amazing yeah. use of the stone the stone gargoyle figures throughout or like a framed photo of bella lugosi next to the ping pong table and this really nice widescreen look on it with like a good like shadows and symmetry yep. and architecture it's shot by the cinematographer jerry fisher who also shot highlander for russell mulcahy yep. running on empty for Cindy lumet and mr klein for Joseph Losey, as well as also shooting Exorcist 3. So, like, very do, gorgeous film. Geez, you guys remember, there, there's one of the funny... I mean, because this is what we should say. Like, this movie, it, unlike The Sender, this movie balances genuine... Like, it's a genuinely funny comedy as well as a... It, somehow, as well as a Catholic psychodrama. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's so many funny parts. One of my favorite bits is when... Uh, Stacey Keach's Colonel Kane, he stops by the rehearsal of the Shakespeare dog production. And then one of the inmates um, shows up in a Superman outfit and he's all prepared and he's got, uh, he's got the costume on and Jason Miller turns to uh, uh, Kane and he goes, can you believe, can you explain to this guy how there was no possible way that Superman would show up in the middle of a Shakespeare play? And the inmate goes, it could happen the way I explained it. And it's just like, it, it's just all this little bickering between all these crazy people. And Kane is just, what, what, what's amazing is like, it's really artfully done because what makes it effective as a drama is that Stacey Keach is so intense. But what yes. also makes it so effective as, as a comedy and a farce is because he is the uber, his intensity makes him the uber straight man yes, to totally. all of these inmates. So he's staring out with these cold, also manic eyes with like a locked jaw and they're all wearing inner tubes or training dogs to be actors. And it's like, it somehow manages to switch between this heady, you know, treatise on God and man, and also be a really, really funny comedy. Well, yeah, the, the, comedy. That, that particular yeah. shot that you're talking about, it's actually held in this really, really long wide shot, wide shot of those guys having that conversation. And I was sitting there wondering, like, shot he's holding yep. this shot for a long time. Like, there must be a reason. And of course, it's because he's waiting for the gag where the one dude flies by on a jetpack. Jet There's <laughs> yeah. a guy with a functioning jetpack. Yeah, just and they flies do the classic, by like, like all the Superman. doctors and some nurses that are even some of these like burly men that are dressed in, in nurse outfits as well yes. that are yeah. following the doctor and they're going back and forth from one side to the other. It's incredibly cartoonish. And, and, 
And can I just say, like, I, I don't want to sound too, um, you know, uh, cranky, but to <laughs> me, uh, I don't know if you've ever ha- if you've ever had on Matt Chrisman, another one of my buddies from my old. Uh, oh, we uh, have. Show. We talked about Gremlins oh. Two with Matt oh, quite a well, while that's, ago. That's that's perfect. Um, <laughs> he's the he's the resident scholar of Gremlins Two, but uh, he and I were talking about this movie. I think we watched it together a, a couple of years ago. Um, maybe it was during lockdown. We watched this. We were like, let's pop that shit on, and it was so fun. But one of the things we we agreed on was, I'm sorry. Uh, Milos Forman, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That is the middle brow, uh, <laughs> Oscar bait version, try hard version. I understand. We all know Ken Kesey wrote the novel and all that, but that, that is the, <laughs> that, that is the inferior version of this film. Like what, what it is, what it is. I could buy that uh, argument. A, a lot of people, a lot of people enjoy that film. I, I think it's, I'm not a big fan of Milos Forman, but, uh, it, it is trying to do what this film achieves, which to me is that, um, uh, you know, double barreled, um, attempt to both tackle this social commentary and heady themes with a farce of an insane asylum. And it just, it, it Blatty doesn't give a fuck in a way that Foreman always does. You know, and I, I love talk about Exodus three. I love, I love Brad Dorif, um, in, in that other movie. I, I mean, I've, I, Jack Nicholson's one of my favorite actors, um, nurse ratchet, great villain. But I think as a whole film, like this movie always hit the spot in a way that, um, what was the far more famous film, um, when flip with the cuckoo's nest appeared to. And I always felt there was much more honesty in this, in this movie and a lot more mm. genuine grappling with a lot of the stuff that was really just kind of on uh, for show. Um, something I really yeah, well, I, I, I imagine Blatty has a lot of these feelings that are being expressed in this. It feels very it personal. It was many years after. Yeah, it was it like six years personal. after. Yeah. 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 And Kane, anyway. I, what I like about Kane too, is that he like the way, and there might be something where he's, you know, he has subconsciously perhaps wrestling with something inside him, which we'll get to. Um, but he takes all of these um, patients' uh, concerns seriously, no matter how animated yeah. they're getting or <laughs> how wild their story might be. He really does sit there with, you know, his very straight face uh, and and just kind of take it in and and try his best to to talk to them on a on a a, a deep and kind yep. of uh, sincere level and a caring level. Um, and hey, I think he, that, he puts on a Nazi uniform in order to give them their great escape <laughs> fantasy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is also another great <laughs> moment, though, that's disorienting because he just wakes up in a Nazi uniform and you're like, yes. wait, hold on. Have we literally gone into the keep? Like, is this a different yeah, movie all of a sudden? And, and then it's like then they reveal after through conversation that it's a psychodrama play exercise and, where they're going to make the patients honestly, the allied prisoners. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is in the novel. But I just want to say also, I, maybe it's coincidence, but I don't think it's irrelevant that the uniformed american military men are wearing a nazi uniform in this movie mm-hmm. you know totally. like i i think there is whether blatty even meant to or not there is a bleed through of i mean we see some gory awful stuff in the memories of kane yeah. you yes. know that that are uh, really the heart of what this movie is about and in his attempt at therapy he's dressing up as a nazi i think the only other film i mm-hmm. can think of mainstream film i could think of that made that direct comp- well even more direct comparison is cross of iron um, with right. James Coburn, where it's like Peckinpah saying, I mean, Peckinpah was a 
was a loop-de-loo in a lot of ways. But he, one thing he knew he didn't like was war. And he thought the Vietnam War was like the Nazis. You know, he thought this was like basically the same project as Nazi extermination of, of um, you know, the Eastern Front. Uh, and so that's why he made that movie about it where, where you kind of are made to feel like, oh, this is not about the Germans. This is about us. This is about America in whenever Cross of Iron was made. I don't, I don't exactly recall, probably the 70s, right? But um, in the same way, uh, it's not, not a total coincidence, I bet. You know, that this is what Kane has all the officers put on as standing members of the American military. Yeah. Yeah. And then as these things kind of pile on to like the the image, the images themselves get um, just as kind of like chaotic because eventually once that that little subplot of of the, you know, the great escape happening as part of the therapy um, kind of disappears, at least from the general plot line, you're still seeing these officers just show up <laughs> in meetings in the Nazi uniform the and Nazi they don't garb. even, they don't even pay attention to it or acknowledge yep. it. So it just becomes That's kind of a pretty, yeah, I, I, I love how it all stacks and starts turning into yeah. gags because like it, it yep. when he does finally meet like Kutcha, the astronaut for example, who they, uh, give him to as like a special patient because they find him part- particularly special case because he wasn't ever going to be put into combat. Mm-hmm. So that to them makes him strange because all these other guys have an excuse to be acting crazy. The guy who's, you know, instead of, you know, getting blown up in war, the dude who's directing plays starring dogs, that kind of makes sense to them. That a sane person might choose to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, for for this guy, they are just like, you know, what happened to this guy who just aborted yep. this mission and decided that, you know, he wasn't going to go up. And that first conversation where he has with him, where it is just a series of ridiculous, and it's a great <laughs> performance from Keach and, and from Wilson going back yes. and forth, where you just oh, yeah. do get great little one-off lines in there, like, uh, why don't you make your couch out of nails so we can see the blood that's pouring out as you like give me therapy or I think the end of the world just came out of the bag of Fritos in my pocket, which turns into a gag where every time he stands up or sits down, you can hear the bag of Fritos breaking in his pocket (laughs) or just even bizarre animal lines. Like why do camels have humps, but Cobra's not (laughs) talk about Groucho Marx, you know, and Blatty getting his, his start from that. There's a scene where (laughs) Keech is talking to, to Wilson and, he, you know, Wilson's already, obviously, whether he's pretending or not, he's going off the walls. And Keach, he cuts to him, and he's all very staid and very buttoned up. And then it cuts back, and, and um, Ed, Ed Flanders is in the room as the kind of, he's just observing, um, watching these two guys go at each other. And then it cuts back to Cutshaw and, uh, and, and Fell. And Cutshaw is just in Fell's arms. He's like, like a Looney <laughs> cartoon he's like jumped into his arms and he's being held like a baby but you didn't see it happen it's like it just a bugs bunny moment to him. It's, it's like it, it's a total like like this is farcical this is a comedy and the idea that the the movie we're talking about and that scene later leads to you know we can probably get to soon not to spoil everything for everybody like this deep-seated exploration of what sacrifice and Jesus and God are about is it really is. It really is a unique movie. And I just want to say also, um, there's a, uh, people should watch the film of course, but it might be confusing when you watch the film. Cutshaw keeps, uh, he has debates about God with, um, with Colonel Kane and he keeps calling God foot and it's never explained in the film, but in the novel, this is explained. Uh, and actually in a deleted scene, this is explained. Uh, he goes on a rant about feet and how he hates them. Cutshaw does. 
And then he Damn. eventually calls God a giant, all-powerful foot. And that's all he does. He's just a foot that squashes, you know. That is funny. I actually did have it in my notes as just a, because without that scene, it is just another sort of like quirky detail of the patients that he just refers to God as a, as a foot among among his other details, like where he tells the NSA official that not to order uh, a swordfish while making it seem like he's like cut his throat with a bag of ketchup and yep. is refusing to go to the moon because it is naughty, impolite, uncouth, and bad for his skin. Yeah, bad for his skin. <laughs> I, I love that. That also, actually makes Fowl even crack up like in the room. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I mean, I mean, Ed Flanders is cracking up at the, and he's, he's in the Exorcist three as well as, um, yes. as the, the it's best great. friend of, um, of, uh, George C. Scott's character. And he's, he serves the same role in both movies. Really. He's like this knowing, uh, wise and uh, sort of um, uh, mischievous uh, guy who has seen too much and doesn't really know what to do with it. And because he's in this position of, in the Exodus 3's case, spiritual authority, and in the case of um, Ninth Configuration, medical, psychological authority. Um, and uh, I just want to say also the Great Escape plot, talking about differences between Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane and the the, the ninth configuration in, in the twinkle, twinkle killer cane, they actually follow the guys who are digging into the, the earth and trying mm. to get out of the, the castles grounds. And it leads to a whole nother, uh, plot in which they find like a ghoul underneath the grounds what? and whether that ghoul is, is real or is, uh, maybe something, uh, that they're mistaking for real. It's actually related to some other bizarre turn of events is, is kind of left, to the end of the novel to be revealed, but Castle yeah, they, they, there's, there's like, it, it is kind of a horrific novel, Twinkle Twinkle, Killer Kane in some ways, because there's all these fake outs about what's scary and what's not. And then there is one, um, one scene about one of the inmates played by the great Robert Loggia, a Psycho 2 connection, by the way. Um, of course. Uh, that's not my only Psycho 2 observation, though. Uh, oh. but, but it's early on in the film and Blatty says, look, I just wanted, I listened to the like commentary, uh, one of those people, uh, <laughs> where, uh, he says, look, I just wanted to make you feel like anything goes in this asylum. Like this is not the, the n- n- nothing makes sense. Nothing is safe. You should feel uncomfortable. And so he said, um, let's have Robert Loggia who's one of the inmates. He, he's doing blackface <laughs> singing to Al Jolson. And you know that's striking. It's I mean some would some would say it's problematic. Some would say, well, look, this is about a place where things are not right. Um, yeah. And that was actually cut. That scene was cut from the U.S. home video version of the film. Mm. But it was not cut because of the blackface. Oh, really? <laughs> it was it was cut because the studio or whatever distribution network that put it out didn't want to pay for the Al Jolson song. <laughs> that's that's so funny. <laughs> That's such like, a funny reason too. Like, like you'd read that on like <laughs> trivia. It'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, they 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 were playing it safe. It's like, no, 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 they they didn't care the blackface in like nineteen ninety seven or whatever. <laughs> they, they 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 don't want to pay two hundred dollars to get the Al Jolson song. So. That's but, so funny. That's but so Robert Loge is great. I think he's probably the guy in the jetpack because he's later in the astronaut outfit. I think 
Um, yeah, in front of all the paintings, just yeah, and also just like running over, into yeah. the paintings and knocking them over, like three <laughs> stooges stuff. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. it is funny how much incredible detail like that they'll throw in there. Like they'll just have a line: "The man on the moon is trying to fuck my sister." And they'll just throw something like that in. But then you will get Keach like very soft spoken and tearfully remarking, just like you know, he'll just start going off like, "What if we're all just fish out of water?" Yeah, and, you know, yeah. sickness and cancer and children and earthquakes and war and you know yeah. death is just death and if these things are part of our natural environment why do we think of them as evil why do they horrify us so you know he just yep. it, it's so crazy the kind of whiplash you will get from this film yep. but what's so crazy is that in the early goings it feels like that and as it starts to build especially in the editing rhythms of it it really just does actually start to because because I think that that's where some people come at it from a critical angle is they go oh well the sort of like wackier bizarre problematic stuff is just kind of you know it's just like dressing he's just being edgy or something but there is like a quality to it where they do start to merge with mm-hmm. the the actual sort of like waking dream reality of Keech's character who is starting to go crazy walking inside this castle in all the stormy yeah. shadows and, and hearing the voices and having these little waking nightmares, uh, which then, you know, character actors with striking faces like Tom Atkins or Joe Spinell will just run into. I think Joe Spinell, I actually realized here in my notes, is the dude who's playing the casting director of the dogs and going through all the breed of dogs for specific roles with <laughs> yeah. Jason Miller, which is there's an extended scene of those two talking about which dogs would be better for which characters and obviously which genders (laughs) for the dogs as well. Um, But uh, they, they do eventually allude to the fact that Kane might be feeling a little uneasy because he is the brother of a murderous Marine named killer Mm. Kane who went crazy and killed about uh, a a few dozen of his men as well as, um, you know, innocent civilians over in Vietnam, including a small Vietnamese boy uh, who we see in a flashback that he uh, decapitated with a wire, which is a really obviously brutal image and the dialogue too, where he says, um, he's like, I decapitated him and he just kept talking. I was just like, oh. oh my God, that's an image. It's absolutely yeah. brutal. And it's it, the way yeah. it's portrayed too, it's like deep in the uh, like the rainforest, it's it's storming out. He's holding the head at a certain point. Yep. It, it like kind of it, at first it's just him and his arms like holding the head, but you can't see it and it kind of does a zoom out from the from up top and you see everything and a soldier discovers him. It's a it's a brutal sequence. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the horror that's in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not a straight horror movie like Exorcist 3, which is Blatty's only other directed film. But you see so much of Exorcist 3 in those moments, you know, just he's got a very stark kind of like clinical and very effective mode of, of direction. You know, what what I love about Exorcist 3 that's also in this is, um, you know, he just does these really sharp cuts. You know, there's yes. this moment of Exorcist 3 where... Uh, that also disorient space and yeah. like bridge bridge multiple places together so it feels like all of a sudden you have been transported to another dimension or another side of the city where something horrible is happening and you're witnessing and you, the way that he just yeah. tangibly recreates the idea of like you are walking within a vision or you are in a dreaming reality yeah. of some kind like his editing patterns definitely pick up on that so that's the one side of the the sort of terror that's in this and the other side is more just like the existential lonely 
conversations that they have with one another because a lot of this film is centered around Keach and Wilson yes. sitting down and him trying to get to the bottom of why he abandoned his moon that's mission. That's the heart and, of the film. That's that's yes. the heart of the film. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because um, The Exorcist 3 is based on a book called Legion. And I've, I've read Legion. It's It's great. I think the film is better because in Legion... Um, you know, it's a novel. It's, it's, it's different. There's a good argument. Someone once made that novels aren't best adapted into movies. They're best adapted into TV. Um, I, I like movies better than TV, but I think there's something to the idea that, that there's a, um, that there is a, a utility in longer runtimes that allow Mm -hmm. a novel to be fully, you know, taken up. But but yeah. in in Exodus three, I think that one of the weaker points of the book is just that Kinderman, which is George C. Scott's character in the in the movie, he has a lot of inner mo- monologuing, and it's a lot about God and philosophy and faith, and it's like, I got it, I got it. Problem of evil, <laughs> uh, you know what, what, what's going on? Why is crime? Why, why do people kill each other? Why is there this serial killer? What, what did Augustine say say about it? Why do people suffer? I get it. <laughs> I get it. It's it's complicated. It's much more effectively rendered through the film than it is through the novel. And I again, I like the novel. It's there's actually some stuff I wish he had included in the film. But um but but in the film it's a lot of monologuing. And mm-hmm. so in the in in, a, in the best way, in a better way, Ninth Configuration is the heart of it is this and the payoff of the ending is about whether you and I three agree about Catholicism or God. The struggle is about getting Scott Wilson's character, Billy Cutshaw, to accept God, really. Um, and 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 Stacy Keach, uh, his character, Colonel Kane, a flawed messenger, is <laughs> in charge of doing that. And and he, you know, that that's what's so brilliant about the film and about the idea is that this guy is basically irredeemable. So how is this going to end up? I'm talking about Stacey Keach's character mm-hmm. and, and, and we'll get to that in a second probably. But like, also I just want to say as far as the dreamlike atmosphere of exorcist three, there's a bizarre deleted scene in this where Colonel Kane is on his way in the very early part of the movie. He's on his way to the castle sleeping in the car. And I guess he dreams or is in touch with these three crucified angels. It's somewhat like the dream sequence in exorcist three where <clears throat> Kinderman. Mm, yeah, he doesn't the, have the full dream, but we do see the image of the three crosses briefly. You see yeah. Here's someone briefly. screaming Vincent. That yeah. is footage from a whole kind of dialogue among mm. these angels who are crucified. It's kind of interesting. Vladdy is kind of fast and loose with like Christian imagery as far, as much as he's a traditional Catholic. Like angels aren't crucified, you know, that that's that's not really mm-hmm. part of Catholicism. But like he 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 uses these these different images to great effect. And they are kind of casually yucking it up. It's like these three guys are in this void, you know, it's like this steamy otherworldly void all on crosses. And they're talking casually about the castle and these inmates and what Colonel Kane is in for. And it, it reminded me of that scene where uh, Kinderman slash, you know, George C. Scott is walking through the Grand Central Station of, of angels mm-hmm. uh, and sees and sees Ed Flanders in that movie with his neck stitched up because he's already been killed. Um, and so there's, there's again, more of that similar universe, more of that, uh, it was cut from the film, but it's, 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 you can still feel it. 
you know you can still feel it in yeah this well, well and, and and you do sort of get it in the image that they did leave in of uh stacy keach dreaming where he yes. has the one about where he sees what might have been uh the sort of like moon landing um yep. mission yep. that he God, was supposed to uh, go on and it's this, this incredible slow dolly pull out where we see jesus literally being crucified on the moon over top of Keech's uh, mm. theory about the idea that maybe he doesn't necessarily believe in God, but he does believe in some, you know, some sort well, of supernatural. Some, some right? s- like Cutshaw's yes. theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a Stacey Keach's theory because Stacey Keach is like a Catholic, right? Right. Well, and I, I remember, but I remember also because I think it's Keech's dream and I think it's yeah. him talking about the part, though, where he is specifically like, I do believe in God in the sense that I believe that there is something fantastic out there, mm-hmm. that something random chance between protein molecules That's and all of this kind of thing. Right. Yeah, he's almost yes. fusing like science with his religious beliefs in a way to try to yeah. justify both, I think. Which is a Catholic thing. Which, which yeah, is a Catholic totally. thing. I mean, especially post-Vatican II, there is a great embrace. Well, but, but also before that, like Catholics, I'm not here to talk good about the Catholic Church. I was, I was recently <laughs> re-watching uh, the first season of Succession because uh, I kind of bailed on that show after the first season. But I, I really liked the first season. And there's a great scene where, uh, where um, uh, Brian Cox is, is the patriarch of the family. They, they've been at a wedding and he's like, shame it wasn't Catholic, but there you go. Fucking all those kids hurt the brand. Uh, so, like, obviously, uh, I'm not here to big up the Catholic Church, but but Catholicism has always embraced the intellectual side of Christianity and uh, tried to make itself the steward of Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, so I mean, like, the, that's why Stacey Keach has that kind of intellectual you know, that kind of absolutely yeah, because 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 wilson is coming up to him and he's basically just like i don't know the way i look at you you're just like pt barnum you know mm-hmm. this guy who just like slaughtered lambs with panthers as a sideshow for entertainment and the animals are innocent and why should they suffer like all of you christian dudes or all you catholics are just right. you know you're just uh masochists in that kind of way and uh you know stacy keach is there to deliver the exact moments of just like well you know why should man you know is is yeah. uh, you know there is some sort of no Ability in, in suffering or in at least sacrifice and, and he brings up some for good your points. fellow man. I mean, he brings yeah. up some good points. That's what's so great about the movie is like, this is not, I'm sure we all went through that high school era where we read Richard Dawkins and we're, you know, oh, yeah. it was like, oh, of course. Is, uh, how could anyone? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Chris Virgins. And, um, and look, the original I'm, I'm, uh, epic student gets owned. That's right. <laughs> <Yes>. That's right. <laughs> we cherish, we cherish oh, those memories. Yeah. that but but um but but honestly what what you tend to grow out of from that if you don't become a believer which I, you know i certainly am not but but there's a lot of genuine thought that went into this stuff and what i like about blatty is that the movie does give you the best example of a of a catholic which is i'm constantly doubting and yeah. my faith is fueled by doubt which is probably an unhealthy place to be as a person but like as a piece of drama or as a piece of you know dialogue uh or you know like a screenplay it's wonderful because you have these characters representing archetypes in the best way possible and um colonel kane (laughs) is a terrible person at the end of the day (laughs) but and he doesn't know that yet i'm sure you know your listeners are about to hear who he is but but he's he's giving some pretty decent rebuttals to what i think a lot of our secular generation would say 
you know, yeah. making like it's, it's a lot of Wilson talking about the open wound slaughterhouse of existence. And then you yeah. have Keach chiming in. Well, you know, maybe he can't interfere because it would spoil his plan. Some evolution of man so like, unthinkably beautiful that it is worth all the pain and suffering. Look, do of I believe every that? single thing that's do ever I believe lived that personally? <laughs> no, but 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 if you believe in God, I always thought it was funny. Like, if you believe in God, like, why would you think he gives one second? of a fig about your life, you know, like if you really believe in that, you have to accept the idea that all of this is nothing compared to what's planned. Again, that's not my perspective, but, but mm-hmm. that is, but, but, but if you're going to engage on that level, I think Keech's character is, is offering some interesting ideas that Blatty genuinely believes, I'm sure, but he puts smart arguments in Scott Wilson's mouth too. Like most of well, the yeah, and that, 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 that's what Scott makes Wilson. it so interesting is because, yeah, yeah he goes like, look, I Keech is saying self-sacrifice and love are proof of some form of divinity. And he says a soldier will throw himself on top of a live grenade. Uh, another man will commit suicide to prevent some sort of infectious disease from killing yeah. other people. And you just have Wilson just being like, well, name a personal example of someone doing that. Right. Have you seen that? Have you seen an act of divinity? Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, and it is a moment where he has to kind of shut himself down and, and be like, I don't really have, yeah, I, I have, I don't have a personal example, but as we'll get into, maybe this film itself so, is the personal so let's example. Get, so let's get to the sleaze. Let's we should. get to the sleazy part of this film. It's the climax of the film before we move on yeah. to the sender, right? So let, let's get to the sleaze because this movie is very contemplative and very, very uh, highbrow. It's almost like a PG Wodehouse, you know, farce. Yeah. It's had a great mood, even though it's spelled out incredibly obviously. You literally have a part. Is it Jason Miller who gets the line? Uh, He's like Gregory Peck in Spellbound. He's come over to take over the hospital, but he's crazy himself. Yep. It knows what it's it's doing. Lots of psychiatrists are deeply disturbed. (laughs) You're just like, okay. Uh, here it comes. It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things about uh, just to do another cross reference to Sopranos. I was I was on a show about Sopranos last year, and it was funny because it made me think about this again. Sopranos, like all good shows, it treats doctors very suspect. Like doctors in the Sopranos, including Melfi, the psychiatrist, you know, in, in relation to psychology in this film, she she, she doesn't. She, she's not great you know like you think she's in charge you think she's like you know the 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 authority figure but they're they're kind of winging it and they're and they're also kind of pricks doctors especially american doctors who were paid a bajillion dollars and so in this film it's like the authority doesn't end up really coming from him being fixed by doctors uh blatty is obviously with his own agenda he's he wants to show something else happen that saves these people uh, that saves Kane in a certain way and that saves Cutshaw in a, in a more earthly way. And so when Cutshaw cuts loose, escapes, he goes to a bar and mm. he starts to get drunk. Well, also, actually, very briefly before we hit that, yeah. we do have to hit into Keech finding out, or at least very, oh, very so, temporarily, yeah, sorry, sorry, yes, yes, the real that he reveal. is... He is killer, killer Kane because killer it happens Kane. just before. But it, it's basically it, it, the, the two sequences are like really tied together. So it makes sense to talk yeah, about both. Totally. But like essentially a new patient arrives who calls him killer Kane and he's stunned and he's looking at him really like it, like he's horrified to see him. And we get this flashback to the Vietnam where we were talking about the where the scene that Jamie was talking about where he is holding the head of the Vietnamese boy who's been decapitated, who we also briefly hallucinates during a church um so service f- just f- sequence f- f- as, funny as well thing there not to interrupt too much, but apparently Blatty had a whole plan for an opening scene in Vietnam 
with uh, a Vietnamese soldier or a Vietnamese woman tossing a grenade toward one of the inmates, uh, thus generating his war, you know, his PTSD flashback. Right. Uh, and, and he called, he, he asked the agents, the casting agency to send him Vietnamese actors. And it was one boy. It was a small boy. And he was studying at the Karl Marx university of economics, which at the time was one of the universities in Budapest. Um, we can hope someday to have, to have that, turn of events here in america but at the time it was the Karl marx university and he's like this is a child this is not what the scene this, this this is not what i asked for in the scene and so they couldn't shoot that scene but they took that that kid who wasn't a child he was like in his i guess high school years and they used him in the church scene and uh, i guess as go. kind of like the kid with the head in his hands uh so they kind of made mm. made that out of a, um, a a misfire of casting yeah, well, you you wouldn't know because it is so confidently directed the oh, sequence yeah. where it, it where it is it is uh, shot and cut similarly to what I would describe as like the brainwashing sequence in the Manchurian Candidate, yeah. where basically like all of the space and psychological subjectivity starts to bleed and blend into one another, where he can't tell exactly where he is. Sometimes he'll be standing in Vietnam, sometimes he'll be standing in the castle, sometimes the character you know, who's meant to be in the castle with him will actually be in his memory. Yeah. And yeah, it's all structured around this reveal that he has been the patient the entire time. And that actually fell is in charge and his yes. brother Hudson, who has basically staged this commanding officer charade shenanigans where he is in charge of all of these patients as a form of experimental therapy in an attempt to give him a new identity and give him some sort of redemption yeah. and, you know, give him the chance to cure instead of kill as yeah. he kind of uh, puts it. I just but realized this is like Shutter Island. I, d I don't know how. Well, yeah, I, I was like, Lane had to have absolutely <laughs> yeah. fucking yep. stolen that. Or like, that's he. just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but what's so cool about that is that, you know, obviously it is an, a moment of all of them recognizing, well, it didn't work. Because all of these traumatizing history bubbled up, even despite the fact of his amnesia. Um, and so he is then uh, further awoken violently by the situation that Brendan was about to talk about with the sleaziest part of the film, where he goes to a local neon pink lit punk bar mm. where Cutshaw has fled to having escaped into the night, despite the fact, I, I might add, that uh, Colonel Kane did not want him going out. Uh, mm -hmm. in, into the night. I love that interaction when he shows up to at his office and uh, ready for like a beach day. And he's, he's wearing just like, like take flippers. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, take me to the beach. And uh, you just have Stacy Keach is like, it's night. It's raining. And yep. he's like, I see you're determined to start an argument already. I yeah. love that. He <laughs> slams also puts, like slams down one of those, uh, like a parts of the castle for a sand castle on his desk yep. as well. And I'm just like, yes, you get sand, <laughs> I made you a mud pie. <laughs> he goes, yeah. I made you a mud pie. Uh, it's so now, good. He, they, uh, Cutshaw escapes into a CD bar nearby. And you know, He's in a bad place because he runs in. He runs into Richard Lynch, yes. uh, the B movie, B movie uh, uh, standard, and uh, Richard Lynch is actually the kind of flunky of a um, of an even bigger batter um, biker guy. And what what I love about this scene is that correct me if I'm wrong. I want to hear what you guys think about this, but it is a it is a wonderful scene. I mean, it's great bar brawl because basically. Colonel Kane or what we thought was Colonel Kane shows up to defend 
um, Kutchoff from being bullied. I was and- definitely stunned that Blatty had even thought to shoot an actual bar fight and yeah. that it was like a pretty decent little action scene it's all great. together so with him. Breaking arms, breaking glass, like ripping rip cages, karate yep. chopping people in the necks. Like I was like, it's very unexpected and it kind of comes out of nowhere, even though it is cued into, you know, his his violent history of being a Marine. And you know and what? As like I that. play, is this playing on my TV right now? Is That's where we are in, in the good, in the discussion it's playing right oh, now. Oh, well, but but the, but the color and the destruction Aww. like it's it's all really well done the thing that weirded me out about this scene was like the weird queer coding of like are. the nazi punks there we are that's <laughs> what i was gonna bring up that's what i was gonna bring yeah. up so like uh i i think for me when i first saw this i was like okay blatty is probably anti-vietnam war he's probably you know and in this film he's clearly rooting for the vulnerable Cutshaw. But these bikers are like this weird mishmash of fascists and queer or gay subculture. And I think that is both. That is the Catholic interpretation of what is going wrong in America. And Mm -hmm. here's the thing is that without accepting any of the Catholic idea or Blatty's, you know, funhouse idea of what, what his social issues are about. There, there is something to the idea that like Nazis, Nazis were, um, though they preached and uh, executed a brutal, uh, pogrom against homosexual people. And, and as they called it at the time, um, there was a lot of fooling around and, in, in, in these, in these sexual arenas, in, in fascism, you know, among, among, among the higher ups and among the gangs, like the, the, there is, the, there is something interesting about the, the, the kind of licentiousness of fascism among those who are privileged enough to enjoy, you know, what they've, uh, what they imagine they've, uh, regained, um, uh, from, from the kind of, uh, Judeo Bolshevik, uh, wave sweeping the world. But, but, but like, so there's something to the idea that, that, that there's like a licentiousness and sexual experimentation in fasc- mm-hmm. in fascist gangs. Um, but, but you can really see like this is, and uh, yeah, I don't care. This is interesting. This is, this is guy's vision. You know, this is his movie. He sees them as the same thing. He sees. See, I, 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 well, I was going to say, yeah, I just saw it as another one of Nazis these is the same thing. You know, yeah, one of these just like horrors of contradictions as another part that he's been doing in the everything that he's been doing with the patients as well, where he just he'll bring up bizarre political iconography or, you know, have the weird blackface moment or the Superman moment and an astronaut and like just the way that he's combined all of these things together. Like, I, I do think it's a bit messy and I could see people like being like, well, the wacky depiction of all of this could seem to you know, could I could see people sure. finding it grating and I'm not sure every detail of it completely adds up, but it does overall contribute to this confused, despairing feeling about just such an ugly world that's been mm-hmm. sort of, you know, made to live with one another and is trying to live within the contradictions and having these punks uh, basically just there to torment Cutshaw and assault yeah. him and rape him yeah. uh, in in the bar because he is the weakling spaceman yep. who, uh, you know, discredited the country or the uniform or, you know, but then also they want Stacey Keach to say that to all say Marines suck. The Marines suck. 
Yeah. But and then also Lynch does the Van Damme does splits and yeah. does makes yeah. him drink beer off the floor. I like <laughs> his line too when he takes out the chain and ties him up and he's like, I learned this in the Boy Scouts. Just yeah. so many yeah. so many implications with with, with everything that Blatty is I mean, throwing at the screen. I at think this that point. Blatty I think that Blatty, look, this is his nightmare, right? Like this is what yeah. he's afraid of. You know, this is what he thinks is scary and what he thinks is scary is some jumble of Americana mm-hmm. and, yes. and, yeah. I, and, and what, and you know, what, what we can draw from that is obviously, you know, you remember the context and all that, but I do think it, it's not totally divorced from reality in the sense that, you know, there was the, these gangs were also confused, you know, like they, mm-hmm. this, this is what we're reflecting in this film is like a time, these Vietnam vets, they're in an asylum. Are they crazy or they're not these gangsters? Are they, do they hate the government or in the military or do they think these guys, do are they sissies? know what that insignia means? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, or are they fascists? Like, you know, like no one really knows what the fuck is going on. The only thing we get out of this scene 100% is just the effective sense that now these two guys uh, who briefly were meant to be sort of doctor and patient and authority and non-authority are put on the same level yep. where yeah. they are now just both two discredited, disgraced uniform men yes. at rock bottom with nothing but each other. And that is what turns into, you know, uh, the uh, finale. Keech. Yeah, just soaking wet, covered in beer, just killing every single one in the room with his bare hands. You know, now, now just the, breaking the, them, throwing them, hurling them. A it's a pretty amazing little scene. A wonderful sequence, and people should watch the movie to see it. But where it ends up is back in the castle, back in the um, contemplative zone of this movie. Mm-hmm. And there is a version of this ending Apparently, on the advice of Stacey Keach, um, they shot two versions of it. The director's cut shows that after Cutshaw spills his guts and finally admits that, you know, fine, you got me. I'm afraid. You know, I'm afraid of going to the moon because I'm afraid of my own mortality. I'm afraid of being alone. You know, leaving Earth makes me feel as though I'm leaving humanity. What if there is no God and I'm alone up there? You know, that would be the most terrifying thing to discover. And that's a very heady moment. But what's even more heady is that he leaves um, Cain, who is draped in a blanket, alone, and Cain has killed himself uh, without Cutshaw knowing. Now, there was another version, as I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. They see Keech said, listen, you might want to have another take where we don't see the knife drop out of, because basically you see a bloody knife drop out of his blanket, implying that he's cut his own wrists, right? And Blatty said, yeah, there should be a version where he allows himself to die yeah. rather than directly taking his own life. Because, of course, That's theologically, what I was honestly, theologically, it's a little fraud that he commits suicide, which is right. you know, yes. basically supposed to be a sin. Yep. Not, not part of the rules. Yeah, that was where my surprise came from. It's it's seen- and, the, Go ahead. and even even in the scene that follows the, the final scene of the film where Cutshaw comes back to the castle many years later, he reads the letter that Kane wrote him before he died. It's, it's just an alternate voiceover uh, that was also recorded where he says the biker's knife stabbed him. Mm-hmm. In other words, he was killed and he let himself die. He didn't kill himself. And for many years, the cutting edge version of the film that Blatty was behind and wanted to, pardon me, be out there was where Kane allowed himself to die by the wound mm. rather than doing it himself. But then Blatty changed his mind 
in the final years and reinstated the suicide ending. Uh, and so that is what you see if you look it up, if you get the Blu-ray or if you watch it on Shutter, is that mm-hmm. Keech, Keech's character has killed himself in order to prove to Cutshaw what the grace of God will allow a man to do for his fellow man, essentially. And now the theology mm-hmm. will probably be too far. That is interesting because part of me wonders <laughs> if it was just going and doing all of the violence to the bikers would be enough to be like, he did that exclusively That's for what I thought it was like another, uh, you know, like another person and really prove to him that he, you know, wasn't incredibly lonely and that he could prove on a personal level that someone else would put their body he's on the still line for them others. the same way he would dive on a grenade. Yeah, that's he's true. He's still killing other people. And I think what Blatty recognized was even if you got the, <laughs> the theological diciness of how he's killing himself, which is yeah. a stupid sin. Let's, let's be honest. That's a dumb sin. Um, <laughs> he, he's saying, no, I'm not going to hurt anyone else. Cause that's what I'm getting over. I killed that kid. I cut his fucking head off. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kill myself in order to let you understand something. And, Catholicism's rules be damned. Maybe Blatty has, maybe if he was still around, he could defend it on a theological level. But it hits a lot harder that he killed himself, I think, than he allowed himself to I mean, die. that shot itself is powerful of the knife falling down. Oh, you know, yeah. I watched the... Cutshaw go back and carry his body down the stairs and everything. And, and briefly, too, I wanted to mention that. When when uh, Cutshaw and, and Wilson are doing that like monologue where he's talking about the emptiness of space and how lonely and how the idea of dying up there alone and there not being a god and that was just the end it is what freaked him out so badly. Mm-hmm. But that mo- the, the lighting on his face that oh, basically yeah. seems like he's only being lit with like the tears in his eyes are like the only thing that you can almost make out in the frame. Yeah. It's very, very well done and, and also mm-hmm. like i i watched the footage um it's on the the, the blu-ray of of the alternate take where there's no knife it just doesn't mm-hmm. work it, it's like you see his bloody hand fall out and you're like okay so he's hurt you know like what what's but when you see the knife in the real cut it is like bloody knife knife it's literally happening as i'm saying it on my screen right now it's funny amazing um, and, it's great and, and it's just like okay totally get it he has sacrificed himself in the original cut or whatever the yeah the the, the impact of that gesture it, hits more physically when it, you see that shot and when you kind of have that all. understanding of it, it doesn't hit at all in the alternate it, it is confusing if anything it's like oh is he hurting is he dying is he bleeding out like what what right, does yeah. the shot mean whereas if you see that knife you're like oh he's gone he's done it he's done it and yeah. that is and that is the end the of the gesture film. of it definitely has some visceral impact yeah and, and is, wait do, do both the, the both have the little epilogue with him doing yes. like the little uh yes. sad slow saxophone playing over top of Cutshaw's return in uniform yes. to the now abandoned mm-hmm. castle having overcome this existential terror by once again witnessing an act of goodness or godly sacrifice yes. in in providing him this uh curative value i think he says in 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 the note is that he was intended there's uh, an alternate, do, but I love the imagery because he's dwarfed by the imagery of the castle. Yes. and you know, there's an alternate uh, voiceover, as I said, in, that 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 prevailed for many years of him reading Kane's mm. letter, and it said the biker's knife got me. But in the <laughs> director's cut, it's I killed myself, or you know, he right. gestures toward that. Um, and even in that last bit, when Cutshaw brings his body down, you see Groper, you see some of the guards, you see Tom Atkins, you see all these guys. Doesn't matter if you're patient or guard. There's a unifying, you know, and of course, Fell, his brother, you know, at the front of the mm-hmm. crowd. There's this feeling of unification around the sacrifice of one guy, and 
And that's pretty powerful, actually. And um, then you cut many years, or some years later, where the sacrifice of Colonel Kane did make an impact on Cutshaw, and he he has mm-hmm. shaped up, and he's back uh, serving his country, going to the moon, one presumes. So um, it's very... Um, it's very uh, Catholic. It's 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 not shying away from what Blatty really. No, I, I love that line that the one guy gets. Uh, heard they had a doctor in there who was really a killer at one point, mm-hmm. and he just goes, "He was a lamb. He was a lamb. Yeah, yeah. he was a lamb to the slaughter, and he was, you know, well, and that's just it. He he, Blatty is very generously given this irredeemable man who's very isolated and has blood on his hands. He's given him a you know a, a way out through Christly martyrdom that is now going to be used as a restorative force to all of these other characters who needed a symbolic gesture in that a lot going on there there's a lot going on there you know maybe it's right maybe it's wrong but it it, what what feels satisfying on a film level is that it it makes sense in the movie you know it 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 is it does. What you, you feel it 100% like Blatty feels it. he makes you feel it there's you know it's it's all in the writing and in the direction like it's 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 all there and if we are pivoting I think towards the reductive rating round which for you Brendan is where we reduce all the words and all the nuance into a rating between <laughs> one and five on the film but it's also become final statements or anything you know if there was any lines or any scenes or anything that we just somehow happened to bypass while we were doing our chat um, we also bring them up here but uh, for me this is uh, this is a, a, a solid four I think this was my first watch with it and i was definitely a little bit on the fence while i was watching it because i was just so perplexed by so much of what i was seeing but the (laughs) style really does bring it all together at a certain point like it is a very good mix of elegant and hallucinatory and constantly Mm -hmm. bleeding between the absurdity of his patience and of these delusions and like did he just wake up in the 1940s as a Mm. nazi or are they putting on a psychodrama (laughs) show is he surrounded by you know shakespeare plays starring dogs and feeling like dracula wandering (laughs) around the bella lugosi castle is he seeing jesus on the moon you know and and just the, the tangibility of the way that it was shot and the way that the castle was used and the huge doors and the statues and the fireplaces like it it does end up sort of grounding these visions for you which then he really plays within the psychological subjectivity of of the editing and the constant dreams and and dream imagery and all of these paranoid psychotic characters that he's surrounded by and it's just it's such a great blend and it does eventually like really sink into the atmosphere of guilt and the psychic mm-hmm. breakdown and the mania that's been brought on by all of these horrors of this, you know, this ugly world that, you know, he's experienced and how can you still believe in this gracefulness and divinity and sacrifice having seen all of these things and seeing them blended together in this cartoon fashion. And it's so cool that that because of the way that the twist works, it brings all of that together as like, like part of this is a form of charade and staging of therapy for Blatty. It, it yeah. kind of feels like as much as it is um, for Keach and it might, I think for people be a little bit messy and it might be a little bit, you know, uh, in the details. Once again, it might not completely add up exactly how he is using blackface and gay Nazis in the bars and you know how all of that kind of but it, it it does contribute to an atmosphere of bleakness and ugliness and contradictions that are bubbling over and uh, for me it, 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 it was a cool mix of shock corridor satirical mm-hmm. asylum comedy and you know genuinely guilt ridden 
psychodrama with theological monologues and everything mm-hmm. like that. So I, uh, I had a really great time with it. And the only thing in my notes that we didn't bring up because we did go long and we hit most of the things I wanted to hit was uh, a, a really great line. Kafka talking to a bed bug is something that Wilson says that he sees in one of the ink blots, which just seemed like a very uh, blatty moment and just contributed to the kind of personal feeling uh, that it has. And very, very briefly, so cool for that blatty just wrote, wrote one of the best horror films ever then wrote and directed to incredibly ambitious and personal yeah. and intensely di- like moody and directed bangers. Yeah. And then he just kind of pieced out, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's it's pretty well, he, nuts that he that showed happened, up on, so. on on George Washington U's campus uh, protesting uh, pro-abortion speaker. <laughs> this is what he did. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Catholic. as as a character says in this, uh, show me a Catholic and I'll show you a junkie. Absolutely, <laughs> Can't stop. absolutely. He he had to go back. <laughs> He's a junkie, obsessed with the suffering. Yeah. Yes, for you, Jamie. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. This is my second time I watched it. I will say the first time was a confusing sit down. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, the performances are amazing. Blatty has such a great uh, eye. Um, like the opening where it's just the, the intensely thick fog uh, just overlapping the, the, the castle. And he has so many different shots of it. It's like something straight out of almost a, like a fantasy um, mm. film or de- definitely a horror film. I mean, we've discussed Dracula and all that, but um, there's something like otherworldly about it that's very, that's very cool. Um, and, uh, yes, I think, I mean, everyone's great in this Scott Wilson though, just blew me oh, away. Yeah. Like his, yeah. his, he's, he's constantly doing this balance between like, he's, he's having an existential crisis, but at the same time, there's a lot of humor involved that he balances mm-hmm. well. I think that'd be very difficult to do. I mean, he's, he's practically cracking jokes with tears running out of his eyes at the same mm-hmm. time. It's, it's very, it's an incredible performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like Blatty is great with the writing. I love all of the philosophical discussions about um, uh, sanity and insanity and how one could use that for their advantage. Uh, the idea of suffering and Catholicism and science. Um, I love his his one line. I don't know if we said it outright. Um, it's the shot where you know the the big famous shot of the of Jesus Christ being crucified on the moon and the astronaut looking up at him with the American flag dug into it, um, and he says. Um, He's like, uh, how life could become on Earth uh, 10 to the 243rd power uh, billions of years was the chance of life occurring. And he finds that more fantastic than simply yeah. believing in God. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's, he's kind of using that, that, that science to, to, to almost justify his own religious beliefs mm-hmm. and having that image of just, you know, the, the crucifixion and uh, mixing it up with one of the, you know, most uh, uh, incredible <laughs> scientific achievements ever. Uh, it's just mm. such a powerful image I find. And, um, I've, I've, I've thought about it for a, 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 quite a bit since I've seen this movie and I just think it's fantastic. It is the poster as well. Yeah. So he knew what he was yeah, doing. I was going to say as an, um, as a movie excuse for just one image, it's a great image to make an excuse out of. <laughs> yes, <you know>? definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what else to add, but I, I think this is great. It is a bit of a confusing work. Um, but I think that's also on purpose. I mean, um, it, he is trying to balance a little bit of like sincerity and madness all at the same time. And I think he does oh, a good yeah. job. And I, and as for the, the, uh, biker gang at the end, it felt to me like, and I, and I do probably think he has, you know, some, some fear about gay culture, just given that he's a Catholic man and 
pretty devout, it seems. Mm. Um, but it, it did also come across like that, 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 that gang of people really had no true ideology whatsoever. Yeah. Like they have moments where they're telling them to do certain things. Then he reluctantly does them. And then the moment that he does that, he goes like, how would you, why would you disgrace the uniform like that? They don't yep. seem to have any real motive. It's more just destruction, I guess. And I think that's his general yeah. fear of like the destruction of the culture that he, uh, I guess, loves also questions cl- quite clearly but mm-hmm. seems to have uh, a love for i think he's exercising so, uh, some demons yeah, here. yeah. You, might absolutely. Say, you might say <laughs> absolutely um the real exorcism is of william peter blatty yeah, yeah. as always <laughs> um yes so yeah, but uh for solid four. Oh, go ahead nice uh for you brendan well i would say what, what we have here is a really unique film a genuinely unique film um, and that's why I think some upon first watch might think that it's, um, confusing, uh, mm-hmm. or, or disorienting. I, I sort of agree. I didn't know exactly what I thought about it the first time I saw it, but I knew that I was intrigued enough to want to watch it again. Yeah. And I did. It's, it's become one of my favorite films because only, as we said before, only the Hungarian communist government and Pepsi Cola could have made this movie um, with <laughs> with true. William Peter Blatty at the helm. It's just it's one of those things. It doesn't come along very often, and um, I'd much rather see the fever dreams of a um, of a paranoid Catholic during the Vietnam War era than most of the stuff that we're fed nowadays. <laughs> and so I treasure this movie. I love the performances. I love the set design. Um, Obviously they were in Hungary and actually had access to a castle, but like the the set design. Yeah. It's very, it's like a resident evil movie, you know, kind of, or like a resident (laughs) evil game, you know, it's like this big, this big spooky um, mansion that, that you don't exactly know what's around every corner. And there's moments where uh, you're not sure if an inmate is going to be funny or is going to smash the hammer they're using to, to, to bust into the wall over Stacey Keach's head. You know, you really don't know what's going to happen. And I find it to be of a piece with Exorcist 3, which is also one of my favorite movies. Um, so to me, uh, it's a it's a real gem. And I'm sure even in this age of reassessing uh, neglected sequels or horror masterworks like exorcist three it's still kind of overlooked um because it lies somewhere it lies somewhere between genres but that's a lovely thing about what we're doing here with this show is we can tell people that if if they have the chance to which now luckily i guess in 2023 on shutter you can you should really check it out and and watch it a couple times if if you if you feel like it because there's a lot going on there a lot going on there yeah, and if you don't have Absolutely. Shutter, I think it's also on Tubi. I think. Yeah, everything's on Tubi. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's the people's movie service, as we've talked about many times on this show, especially um, for this show. Yeah, but that's a five, Brendan. I'm assuming oh, that's the sorry. five, big old um, five, right? You know, I mean, it's one of my favorites. It's, 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 it's a favorite. I, I feel would like, say. I, feel like. I would say. You know, it's not. It's not like a. It's not like a perfect. I mean, like I. I try to be. I'm always kind of stumped by what the what the five star means between your personal 
inclination yeah. and the objective inclination. I mean, we, we, Jamie I and I don't talk about it much on the air, but but I was going to say for Jamie and I, we've talked about it a couple times. For for us, the difference between like a really high four and a five is literally just the personal part. Do you yeah, feel it's like it? The is it like in your bones? Is that the thing? Can we do that halves? You're like, yeah, that's, Can we do have stars? You do have oh, yeah. for sure. I, I, I would say personally for me, it's a five, but I would give it a, a four, a four and a half, a four and a half, because, you know, most people are going to view it as a four. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. uniquely tuned. I'm uniquely <laughs> tuned into this, this disgusting universe of, uh, mid 20th century Catholicism, but, uh, it's so good that I think it elevates it, uh, f- given that, that point of view. And so I think it's a four, four and a half out of five. Nice. Awesome. Well, I think that that is going to wrap it up for the ninth configuration. And uh, having just received a bunch of amazing visions and messages from our pal, (laughs) William Peter Blatty, I think we are going to move on here and we are going to talk about some of the messages that a Mr. Roger Christian wants to send us in his movie, The Sender. So we'll be right back. Stick around. Sender, his nightmare will become your reality. Coming soon from Paramount Pictures. All right, we are back and we are talking The Sender, the 1982 British psychological uh, horror film written by uh, one Thomas Baum and directed by Roger Christian in his feature directorial debut. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is our first ever time talking about Roger Christian, who is a British set designer and art director turned filmmaker, probably most famous, unfortunately, for his disastrously (laughs) expensive dreadlocked Barry Pepper and John Travolta starring Scientology science fiction epic from the year 2000. Battlefield Earth, a movie that dared to ask the question, what if Dune or Planet of the Apes uh, was just the ugliest thing you'd ever seen in your entire life and was like 95% Dutch angles and like (laughs) wipes and on release was basically considered one of the worst movies that had ever been made. And I felt bad just like kind of like generally writing that out because it's like it's the most basic ass like read or opinion on that film so i actually did go back and revisit <laughs> battlefield earth <laughs> so you could and i didn't change anything it. that i wrote it's exactly <laughs> that everyone's right about it it's really terrible sometimes, it's really unfortunate sometimes a dreadlock is just a dread sometimes an alien dreadlock is just an alien dreadlock there's, there's nothing <laughs> yeah, more to be said I, like i genuinely felt so bad and so basic just like writing the biography out for him briefly that I was like, I need to go back and just double check that's accurate. And now everyone's pretty much right. It's terrible. But I but to be fair, I also gave Roger Christian another shot. I did extra homework this week. I also watched his 1997 uh, kids movie version of Die Hard. That's like uh, it's called it's called Masterminds. And it's set in a prep school um, with uh, Pete from Mad Men playing like a young hacker prodigy who uh, (laughs) is helping to 
to stop Patrick Stewart, who's in the Alan Rickman role, um, from kidnapping a bunch of the rich kids and holding them ransom for all the prep school <laughs> parents. And uh, the, the plot of that movie kickstarts because the, the kid is trying to pirate like a pre-release copy of Scream 2, which is just like a weird <laughs> detail that takes place in it. And it's not very good, unfortunately, oh, but I was kidding. like, it's slightly better. It's slightly better than Battlefield Earth. It's just not violent enough. I was thinking of Dial Code Santa Claus if I was thinking oh, of like yeah. a kid's version mm-hmm. of Die Hard. Yeah. I was like, it just doesn't compete with that on a directing level, unfortunately. But it's slightly, like it's competent. It's perfectly fine in terms of, you know, it's no Battlefield Earth where you look at every visual directing <laughs> choice that understand. was made and you're just like, you're like, this is the opposite of what would make your movie look like it cost as much money as it did. Cause that movie genuinely cost like $70 million. It's or amazing. Something. It's <laughs> amazing. And it's, it's honestly, I mean, people should watch it for the, the you know, the, the, the experience for, yeah, for, for, the, for the, the XP points, but it, it is still, it's pretty difficult to watch. If only just, I get nauseous, you know, like mm. with the Dutch angles, like it's, it's genuinely disorienting every single shot going into another fucking Dutch angle, like, like with no sense of geography or rhythm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the worst part of it. It's not, it's not John Travolta. Who's w- delightful, uh, <laughs> delightfully bad in it. It's not, you know, the L Ron Hubbard nonsense. It really is just so hard to visually get through. What I is don't Travolta know channeling what happened in that. Is he like and, and it's quite long up? too. Like it's just, Oh like, yeah. Oh wow. yeah. But is it he, has so if, much to say, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what is Travolta channeling in that? Is he, is he kind of like hamming it up kind of comically? Like he's playing a very angry middleman or middle manager type in like the, the L Ron Hubbard universe. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he's I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe. He's like he's like a someone nerdy who, Klingon. He's like a he's like yeah, a he, yeah. geek. Klingon. He's trying to enslave Barry Pepper, who's playing like a like a caveman. Okay. But also he's dealing with like all of his bosses and he's trying to get them to mine materials for him. And it's just I don't it's 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 surprisingly like complicated, but also and like convoluted, but also yeah. like incredibly stupid and simple at the same time. The like less we talk about it, the better. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Well, well, yeah. I mean, Roger Christian would definitely prefer to be remembered. I would imagine oh, yeah. for, for his Oscar-winning and nominated contributions to production design and yep. the dirty, recycled junk science fiction art style that he did mm-hmm. on both Star Wars and Alien, yep. which he was responsible right. for. Like, let's yeah. be one hundred percent clear like this is the guy who set designed alien yep like so yeah and also you know was so good at it that he eventually second unit directed a bit for george lucas as well for many of his uh i think he did like return of the jedi and a couple of the other star wars after and stuff Mm -hmm. like that so like you know he is a very very accomplished um uh art director and uh it, it was interesting to kind of and also kind of a you know he hung out with like ridley scott so he had a little bit of like pretentiousness to him which was mm-hmm. wonderful because that's what kind of led to the sender happening which was written by this guy thomas bomb and it was originally conceived as basically like a straight horror film adaptation of bomb's supposed own experiences with an agoraphobic uh mother who mm. was just you know very controlling and wouldn't let him leave and the studios were interested in this script primarily on the basis of it kind of being a pulp movie akin to other telekinetic horror films that were being popularized in the wake of Brian De Palma's Carrie, which we've obviously we've covered on the show. And we've actually covered a lot of the other ones that came out in that wake as well. The Fury. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cronenberg scanners, of course. Um, and so Patrick? essentially, Did you guys do Patrick. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, no, we haven't done Patrick yet, but no. that's the by the Psycho 2 guy, right? Richard Franklin? That was my other Psycho 2 connection by Richard Franklin. Oh, yes. nice. yeah, true. Yeah, because yeah, because I, yeah, no, I, I have not actually seen that one yet, it's but good. we will absolutely be covering there's it. A lot when of, we get there's back a lot and, of Patrick in, in this movie, I think. Okay, okay. Because the thing that it, it kind of reminded me of, if we're talking about that, is that it just kind of ended up reminding me of Mark Lester's Firestarter more than it did sure, like sure. Totally. Cronenberg's Scaries or like De Palma's Carrie. Like sure. I, the Firestarter was a little bit closer to what I imagined, and maybe a tiny bit in the sequencing itself of like Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, like the third one, especially. Yeah, with Elm Street. The sort of teenage dream. Yeah, the the, yeah. the psycho horror. It's it's Firestarter. It's Patrick. It's a little obviously a little bit of Carrie particularly in mm-hmm. the um in the Shirley Knight uh, role of the mom um even with the southern accent almost a little bit too carry uh <laughs> and Elm Street 3 and and I would argue yeah just a tad bit of ninth configuration as far as an asylum um a, an asylum movie dealing with the power of um of nightmares and memories yeah yeah, well, and I, it, it did make me wonder if Craven had seen this before because Craven would eventually collaborate with, with Thomas Bomb yeah uh, yeah, because they, they did uh, Night Visions together, which is not a very good TV no. movie. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if, if you're interested in uh, seeing Craven do like a TV movie about a multiple personality telepath helping hunt down a serial killer, there I mean, there are very few movies that will offer that to you. So yeah. it's not and like it was, you have many places to go. It was very cool <laughs> to see an early example of like the, the kind of dreams coming into the physical reality. It's not quite as, um, I guess tangible as it is in nightmare on elm street at least at first um but just that general idea of like what you're seeing in your dreams is is something that you can feel and it seems a part of your reality so that that was cool well and 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 christian definitely had some like ambition as a director in in this film and which is where you get kind of an interesting push and full that you could argue works or maybe doesn't work in in the film's favor depending on how you want to view it but like christian was like here's a pulp script that was very clearly exploitatively greenlit greenlit in the wake of other telepathic horror films succeeding on this budget level. Mm-hmm. And here's a guy who, you know, just won an Oscar for his set design and also won an Oscar for one of his dramatic short films being given his first opportunity. So he walked onto set and apparently people were like, he was talking like an art film filmmaker. He was like, I'm going to make my Bergman film. I'm going to make mm-hmm. my Tarkovsky film. Like that's what this is. And he actually had a huge beef with the producers uh, making this film because he wanted to make a much more artier kind of slow burn film. And which is why we have a, a very strange combo in this film that personally I think works, but is like, yeah. a, you know, it kind of walks that line of between both of those things where he's taking the characters and the dramatics and the psychology very, very seriously. Uh, but at the same time, it will all of a sudden explode into like a very gruesome pulp, you know, nightmare sequence. Yeah. Uh, like just kind of out of nowhere. Being thrown through windows in slow motion and all of that. Like those are the is, strengths. Yeah. The, those are the best parts of, of the film. Like, it, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, it's a decent yes. B movie that's punctuated by some really great set pieces around the premise of a patient who can cause a whole hospital a whole mental hospital breakdown every time he has a vision or a nightmare. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, it is starring uh, Zelko Ivanek, who I think this is the first time we'll ever talk about <laughs> him as well. You might recognize as that creepy dude from various uh, Ridley Scott films, Lars von Trier films, also on a bunch of TV shows. Uh, and he is playing a disturbed telepathic John Doe number 83, mm. uh, who is, uh, yes, as Brendan mentioned, unable to fully control his ability to transmate his dreams uh, and visions into the minds of the people around him and perhaps even influence their uh, realities and there's a sort of whole kind of backstory that he might be doing this and uh, he essentially is being helped along by a female therapist played by Catherine Harold from uh, Albert Brooks's Modern Romance for anyone who's seen that but also we've talked about her once on the show she's in Raw Deal uh, co- co-starring with Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger in that film she's she, pretty good I first, well. I first saw Catherine Harold I was a uh, big Larry Sanders show Man, mm. and she has a recurring role in season two as uh, Larry's ex-wife. That was the first time I ever saw her, um, and she plays a therapist in this movie. And in real life, she became a therapist oh, uh, nice. in in the early nineties. She she became a licensed marriage counselor, I believe, while still doing TV roles. So she um, she continued to Good do roles. Her. I think she's in recurring roles in the nineties. I know she's in an episode of King of the Hill. Um, nice. in the, in the late nineties. And she has, she's, she's a very beautiful lady. Um, uh, she has almost like a Margot Robbie look to her, um, uh, in, in this movie in particular. Uh, and she has very kind of naturalistic acting style, which I mm-hmm. think ground grounds this movie a little bit more than it might otherwise have felt, um, given the subject matter. Yeah, I will say, like, I mean, she, you need that presence because some of the things that she's seeing and feeling are obviously, you know, very ungrounded and very crazy. And also, uh, I'll say it, like, Zelko Ivanek as John is definitely delivering a much more sort of, uh, a performance that's both like kind of manic and mannered at the same time. It's yeah, kind of hard yeah. to describe. It's yeah. a, it's a bit of a strange performance, but I, I did eventually kind of get into it. Cause that, I mean, that, that kind of, that character who knows what someone in that kind of situation would be, uh, would be feeling. But yeah, so he's being helped along by his therapist and also, his mother seems to be kind of hot on his tail or also being conjured. You're not really sure for most of <laughs> most of the film, but due to the tagline, you will understand he has the power to make you live his nightmares and he's dreaming about you. Also, I will <laughs> say in connection to ninth configuration, uh, another great poster. I just, I remember seeing yeah. this poster like yeah, long before really I had knew what the movie was. And just like, just this like sleeping pink face. That's like leaving a bleeding light trail to an open pair of eyes, like right mm. next to it. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. It's yeah. a nice little image. Also, um, um, just like in the opening, since we're just kind of talking about the, uh, like the poster and stuff, the, the music itself, I thought was really good, honestly. Yeah. I, um, I wanted to, I, I wanted to mention that too. Go, go, go ahead. What'd you think? Yeah. The, um, it's, well, it's cool because it's 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 kind of almost spooky uh, and very mysterious um, in the beginning, and then what it turns into is more of like a lush, kind of beautiful orchestral thing. But it it, it almost seems like it starts with synth and maybe a little bit like it might. I think it's a wind instrument. I couldn't actually pinpoint what exactly it was, but then like violins come in, and yeah. I was listening to it on my speakers too, just to nerd out on the audio a little bit. Um, they have this thing where it's like it starts to build on the left side with these plucks as the 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 more like um, uh, flowing strings come in on the right side and then it fills out the rest of the speakers and so 
that whoever was mixing it too was uh, honestly it's it's very good so i i really liked the opening uh uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's by composer Trevor Jones, who did uh, John Borman's Excalibur, Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans. Mm, he did yep. Angel Heart, Labyrinth. Like, you know, he's kind of he's punching great. above his pay grade a little bit on this one. Dark Crystal <laughs> yeah. as well. Now, oh, yeah, now Dark said, Crystal is fantastic. That score. You said, score. You said Excalibur, which is John Borman, who did Exorcist 2. Ooh. Oh, there's your other Exodus 2 connection. Nice. Exodus 2. And everywhere. then I would say, this is just a personal opinion, but what I, you kind of mentioned it there. I, I like that it mixes the traditional score with synthesizers, kind of like Psycho 2 does, because mm-hmm. I believe Jerry Goldsmith mm-hmm. in Psycho 2, there's an orchestral score, but then there's some synth elements. And this one kicks off, as you just said, with a more lush orchestral overture, but throughout... When you start getting into the meat of the movie, you get these great eerie synth tones, some, sometimes yeah. almost like Vangelis. Uh, and um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's, it's sort of that. I think Exorcist 2 was also 82, was it not? Or maybe 80 or 82. Um, mm-hmm. So it was around the same area, in other words, where we're coming out of the 70s, but we're, we're right. not quite leaving behind the strings and the, and, yep. the, and, the, and the orchestral instruments uh, in the timpani in favor of pure synthesizer. So it's, it's, it's a fun area to be in. Yeah, it's it's great. yeah. I mean, it, it's it's definitely like a surprisingly like I like the, like lush is the right word, Jamie. Like it's it's mm-hmm. and surprisingly like expressive. Just again for yeah. the material that we're dealing with, because like you would not expect again something producers greenlit because they were like ah we want our, like our version of the Fury. Anyone got like a script mm-hmm. that's kind of like the Fury around and like to you know again have music that's kind of this beautiful and and honestly imagery too. The cinematographer Roger really Press. Nice is the guy who, uh, this was one of his first films, and he would go on to shoot, like, Brazil mm, and yeah. Mona Lisa <laughs> like, with Bob damn. Hoskins and the Tim Burton Batman. Like, it's really nice vision sequences, like, nice little tracking and dolly maneuvers and, and stuff that he's pulling off. And this moody opening, like, right away with, you have uh, John, who's very kind of unkept and a little angsty, and he wakes up next to a highway, walks barefoot to a beach crowded with families having a good time, fills his pockets with <laughs> rocks and in this incredible long crane shot that basically starts in the sky looking down at the beach and ends by the completion of the movement underwater in a close-up of John's face while he tries to drown himself in front of everyone and just like the the the, the movement and the staging of this is kind of insane and in that it yeah. holds that shot for that entire time and also follows him and the slow like he slowly walks his way into the water. Everyone watches him. People start turning their heads and being like, what is this guy doing? And then the screams when everyone realizes what it is that he's trying to do. Like, yeah. it's just, it is a great little opening that kind of, I was again, going into this being like the battlefield earth guy. And I was like, that's just a great piece of visual and sonic directing. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get it right off the bat. This movie does not feel like it was directed by the battlefield earth guy. It just it's a no. it's a perfectly it's a perfectly good and also 80s the direction movie. I'd argue is maybe the strongest part yeah. of the film oh, yeah. more than the writing or acting you. or you know like so totally. it's just yeah although I, I have to say it's, Thomas Baum who did the script uh, mm-hmm. get this one he was the writer of the film he also did a film called Witness to Execution which was directed by Tommy Lee Wallace who directed Halloween oh. 3, Season of the Witch, which starred... Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins, who was in <laughs> the ninth We got another one. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> 
Hell yeah. Well, subsequently, after that opening scene, John uh, gets taken to a mental hospital where he is put under the psychiatric care of Gail Farmer, who we've mentioned is played by Catherine Harold, mm-hmm. and he is put under the name John Doe 83. And she does briefly try to get some personal information out of him to a resounding uh, fuck off uh, because (laughs) he is uh, at once angry and upset that his uh, plan to fill his pockets with rocks and walk into the ocean didn't work. He was planning to kill himself very old school Hollywood melodrama Mm -hmm. style, um, but instead finds himself suffering from amnesia. And uh, he doesn't remember exactly why he did that or why he had those feelings or maybe why he did that. And he claims also to never have had a father. Uh, like Jesus, uh, connecting it to our good friend, William uh, Peter Blatty. But the issue there, as Catherine Harold points out, is they already have a Messiah (laughs) uh, who believes that he's the chosen one and uh, uh, living inside the facility. And the rest of this movie, for a lot of it anyway, becomes sort of similar to uh, ninth configuration in that it is him hanging out with various other uh, eccentric uh, patients, even though it is a little bit more tied to the plot of uh, Gail watching him and uh, the way that he, yeah. you know, transmits transmits uh, his dreams to them and starts kind of causing uh, havoc. And, you know, the way that, you know, his feelings start being uh, pe- people around him start becoming attuned to them and picking them up like a radio uh, signal of some kind, like the, for example, that Messiah character who, uh, kind of senses his dislike for him and uh it manifests in this vision he has of him being guillotined that poor uh, guy, by john he goes through yeah. it in this movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. several times he's just a head knockoffs i mean i mean not yeah. to not, not to spoil anything but i well you know what i'll, I'll save this remark spoil when we get to the end well i was just gonna say like the, if there's one thing that kind of takes away to me from the movie is that when John Doe 83 exercises his powers um, in some excellent scenes and gore that we'll, yeah. yes. we'll talk about. The one thing that kind of takes away is that then it's everything snaps back to reality and they didn't actually yeah. Every time, yeah. And it's just like, yeah. oh, I thought that... The trick gets a little old. It, it's <laughs> like, I, and, and it'd be cooler if maybe, okay, at first that happens, but then eventually it really does stay permanent because mm-hmm. you get all these great moments, like, for example, Messiah you know, to spoil something right off the bat, he's, he's convinced that John Doe 83 has, you know, been, been uh, guillotining him psychically. And then later on in the movie, <laughs> when I hate when people do that to me, by the way, I'm sick of it. <laughs> Just I'm so sick of knows. it. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, my head's always fallen off. <laughs> well, he, he's teasing John Doe and then John Doe punches him and his head comes clean off and it looks great. It's an awesome. Oh, yeah, dude, it's, awesome. It, it, it's like awesome. that dummy head decapitation in uh, the omen. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it's like what David Warner, right? Gets his head chopped off. And yes. Way. And yes. it's like, and it's like, Oh, that's so great. And then a couple minutes later, it's like, he's, he's like just jittering on the floor. And the guy was like, I thought I saw his head come off, but now it's normal again. It's like, no, come on. We got to We got to play for keeps here. You got to have some people, you know, get fucked up violently in this movie. I do like that in that part that there is a, a physical consequence to it. Cause I think the security guard shoots him because he thinks he's a walking beheaded man. Yes. Um, But, but I agree that at, at a certain point, it's almost like, um, it feels it takes the bite even out though of it's everything. showing you, yeah, it's like showing yeah. you all these consequences, but then instantly taking it back. So it doesn't. It, eventually, it kind of feels like there aren't a lot of real consequences. Yep. I mean, I could imagine it would be terrifying, you know, to go through the sequences that that she goes through and the other uh, patients yep. go through. But it it never 
really ends up with anything that no. seems to last. We'll talk I about it. The, 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 the only lasting damages are psychic ones. Like yeah. it's yeah. him on the ground being like, my head was just cut off and I remember my head cutting off. I know that experience, but we'll talk yeah, about, like that yeah. is the We'll talk severity. about a great, a great set piece that almost makes up for that. But even at the end of that one, I was like, oh, come on, everyone's fine. You know, because it was such a cool, violent, like, I'm talking about the, the Electroshock Massacre. Yeah. Yes. Like, One of the best scenes in the film. That's the best scene of the yeah. movie for me. And and it's and, and so we'll get to that. But it's just, even that one is, you know, sort of rewound. And you mm-hmm. just feel a little cheated. You feel a little cheated after it. And I will say, no, like, 100, 100%. The, the, the scares that you do get before are a lot of fun because they get to pretty much do whatever they want, in a sense, yeah. because there's real no rules in the, in you know, dream logic and all that. So mm-hmm. um, it, they go from simple things from, like, you know, she's opening a fridge and she just sees a ton of cockroaches yeah. um, to something that I think is a, is a lot cooler um, and a really great sequence. And reminded me, actually, of um, uh, It in the, the bathroom sequence. Where you know she's she's washing her face and then the water turns into blood and then yeah. all of a sudden the mirrors crack and they start yeah. bleeding themselves. Right. Um, so that that kind of stuff, I the I rats coming love. out of his mouth is always yeah. really good. And a real big yeah. like the way that he um, that Christian directs it to is is really gross because he he kind of does this close up on of a of a dummy that they made. And so you see the rat actually coming out of the guy's yeah. mouth for a oh, brief yeah. second. Yeah. It's almost like a ta- an Italian horror totally. yeah, that you very, wouldn't expect to see in this movie. Very, right? um, totally. uh, yeah. What, what's like beyond the door, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I thought a little bit of Argento and Bava too, in that just the, the lighting scheme of that, uh, really bizarre, like, uh, extended tailing driving sequence that basically looks oh, like yeah. she's following him through like the yep. neon glow as it, and then it turns into a chase scene That's where, where we he's get like some riding Dutch her ass in the truck at high speed. That's, yeah. You get a little bit of the Dutch angles, like the Roger Christian classic. I white knuckled it. I was either. like, Oh no, Oh no. <laughs> Are we entering the battlefield earth zone? But yeah. he goes back to <laughs> here. Normal. It comes. And there's no sound design either, which is really cool. Like it starts off with them sneaking into, like she sneaks into the the car to follow the truck. Um, and there's also this uh, before that too, just a really beautiful shot when before she gets into the car, where it's like this kind of white light that's coming from the gate. It almost makes it look silhouetted and foggy before she gets into it. Um, but yeah. anyway, there's um, no sound design in the actual chase. It's just this synth. Yeah. And it kind yeah. of gives that really mysterious feel that I, I enjoyed. There's like a, an intrigue, uh, a mystery. So, yeah. I meant, um, yeah. I meant, uh, the beyond by Lucio Fulci, not beyond the door. By gotcha. The way. Okay. Oh, I was okay. Gonna, I haven't seen beyond the door, but yes, the beyond Lucio Fulci. Definitely. Beyond yeah. That's definitely is, is feels like great. Um, I think that new evil dead movie looks like it's basically going to be beyond the door, but you know, hmm. we'll see. Yeah, I, I, th- there's a there's a print of it that gets played every once in a while here in Toronto on 16 millimeters. So I keep holding it off until I get a chance to see that because I want to go. It's fun. It's just the Exorcist. Yeah, I've, I've, it's just the Exorcist, but they're Italian and the mom is possessed instead of the daughter. But it's fun. Yeah, that's yeah. great. But yeah, yeah. Well, and and so yeah, like the, the the primarily the reason we're talking about them is because the stuff that is strongest about this is probably um, the you know surreal sort of dream sequences and, mm-hmm. and it helps too that you know a bomb script is smart enough that it does program them into like a lot of the story is developed through these sequences like gail yes. is who we see primarily experiencing them early on because she is when john is asleep she is starting to get his feelings and his fears and his visions projected 
uh, to her. And it starts off like very, very simple stuff and really, you know, like elegant stuff. Like it is just she sees John like stealing a necklace from her jewelry box mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. Right. And it was like the piece of jewelry she was wearing at work. So she obviously immediately assumes, well, my patient has just broken out. It's probably something that's happened to me before. And she calls up the hospital. She's like, look, he's he's broken out. He's broken in my house. Call the cops. You know, I'll deal with this. This is something tangible and in reality and in my line of duty as in my profession. Right. Yeah. But it's captured in this really nice little like panicked tracking shot, like all through her house as she goes like room by room and light switch by light switch. And it does contribute a little bit to this uncanny feel of that's not exactly what it is that's happening here, which is then corroborated when the cops show up and they go, there's no break inside. So there's no broken window. She calls the staff. They say that he's still asleep in his door bed. And all of a sudden now she's having visions of his mother. Yeah. coming to take take him away which you know well and he's having was, visions of his mother which also freak him out but then she's also talking to her and seeing her and thinking that she's there in person and then all of a sudden she will just disappear and she spends the rest of a set piece being talking to all of the various like secretaries being like did anyone see like a, a woman leave like what's happening to my life right yeah, now and i think it's yeah. that mix of uh, having those awesome sequences that are more like elm street with these more mundane sequences of illusion um so that you kind of as an audience member get a little bit confused on really what's real and what isn't at least they attempt to do that um i also like that in that first sequence where it's another one of those more mundane visions or at least what's revealed later on to be a vision um is that you only see him when he's entering the house and rummaging around through reflections like i think she only sees him through the reflecting the reflection of the door that leads to the outside and then when she turns around, she sees him in the mirror, the dresser mirror. So right? I, yeah, it, that I thought that that was kind of interesting, just that she doesn't see anything super physical, at least right in front of her in that sequence. And then it turns into or at least it's revealed to be a vision. So I think those small details are really cool and pretty important to buying what you're watching. And especially when they start to do the kind of um, reveals of the twists, which nine times out of ten is just that it was a dream sequence and it wasn't what you thought it was um, no. they, they tend to yeah. do that but, over but, and over again the, but they're effective they, 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 yeah, I was going to say, at the very least, they do say, like, look, the way that he's directing them, they're incredibly vivid and they feel yeah. incredibly real. And, like, that's what you're supposed to be kind of getting at it is that it, 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 I do wish that they committed to doing more, like, physical consequences. Yes. But they are meant to be, like, you are feeling them as if they are 100%. Um, real mm-hmm. because he is i guess sort of like sending thoughts directly to your brain i think they say at one point that they're like the hospital has been doing research study on <laughs> yeah. mothers and babies yeah. and they're like infants can communicate telepathically for the first I six months right. sending for their mother and they're like we have the first adult case of sending yeah which <laughs> is funny because yeah sorry go ahead. Go, go ahead well i was just oh. saying it's, it's funny that like th- this is a state mental hospital she actually makes a, a point of that in the beginning and it's like I don't know if a state mental hospital is like doing experiments on infant mother telepathy. telepathy I mean, yeah. like, it, like it'd be more, it would be more, I'm not saying the government doesn't do that kind of research, but like this, you know, dime a dozen state mental hospital does it. Uh, it'd be, it, it would have made more sense if it was like a, like a private, you know, medical kind of, kind of shady institution that's doing Put some, it all the, the men in suits and fire starter kind yeah, of horror yeah, stuff. But, right? but, yeah. but I also kind of like how, um, is in the fury. I like how the yeah. no, the, the no nonsense doctor played by Paul Freeman, who played um, very accomplished actor. He played everything from Henry the fifth to uh, the goopy guy in the power Rangers movie. I think um, he's her mm-hmm. like superior uh, Ivan ooze. That's what I was thinking of. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. he, he's, he's her superior at the hospital. And he's sort of at first the classic by the books authority figure. A- and then after she tells him of her weird car chase, he's like, well, I suppose it could be telepathy. I, <laughs> yeah, like, I was, I was, I was just, just like, going to say that. He instantly thinks it's, he's, he's instantly bought into the, how it's psychic. He's like, oh, I, I suppose perhaps it could be his otherworldly brain powers. Uh, if we have to do some experiments around that, it's like, oh, that was easy to convince him of that. Yeah. With, within my notes, I was even like, so is telepathy just normal in this world? <laughs> like, is it yeah, just it kind of comes out of nowhere. And, and then later when, when they find him trying to commit suicide again uh, and they stop him, she, they, they all kind of crowd around him and she's like, what are you, Calvin Harold's like, what are you going to do? And he's like, what we should have done is for, first off, scramble his brains with electroshock <laughs> therapy. It's like, well, you already said you believe in telepathy. Is this a good idea that you're going to make his brain have convulsions all over the hospital? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that seem irresponsible. Which, which, by the way, does believes. that 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 is the best sequence. Like when they let's talk when about they that. do let's the first round of electroshock therapy that they do on him. Which briefly, with the way that they shoot the old school medical devices, it briefly did remind me actually of the medical horror stuff in The Exorcist. Yeah. Talking about Blatty, yeah, um, and his brains when they start trying to like actually electrocute him, his brains send everyone flying in slow motion like gravity has left the room and you get so many shots of just these doctors being like just lifted off the ground and it's expressed in this really physically gruesome way like the shot jamie mentioned that i love too (laughs) of the dummy doctor flying through the full blast like a stunt shot ragdoll style but then also you get stuff like Speaking of uh, ninth configuration, we get a Vietnam flashback yep. of like yeah. the one dude patient in the hospital oh, who so believes right. that the, the war is still ongoing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there, there you there's, go. That, there's that patient, and he's a nice guy, but he thinks he's still in Vietnam. Like that's when the when page, when John Doe eighty three gets there, this guy won't shut up about Vietnam. And while everyone else is getting violently thrown around, he, you see there's some specialization because he is getting shot at. Like he's taking cover mm-hmm. be, behind a sofa or something. And what mm-hmm. the t- telekinesis is doing to him is bringing him back to Vietnam. So it's it's all it doesn't totally make sense because it's like, well, why aren't we seeing the deepest fears of the other doc? Like they're just getting of the other people. Yeah, yeah. Like, but, but whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. fine. But but you it's, can make it's up really excuses cool. like the girl smashing her head against the mirror is maybe like self abuse or something. But yeah, it sure. doesn't really specify well, well, and, well and and with the messiah it is the That's the right. anxiety that that off. guy expresses about yes. his head being cut off so he's just standing in the shower Constantly. while his neck just starts bleeding out everywhere and, like he's being strangled with a wire or something and talk right. about the score what, what i really love is as soon as they flip the switch you know for the for the uh, ect the synth black it could be a sound effect but it's really a synthesizer and it blasts oh, yeah. this, this great uh kind of sawtooth note and then mm. everyone instantly it goes, feels like an anti-gravity machine every, I, has been turned I, on. I have yeah. it in my notes. I have it on my notes. Everyone goes anti-gravity. <laughs> it was like dead space. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden everyone just like whoosh. And then everything's in slow motion. And man, when that boss man, the Paul Freeman character, when he gets catapulted through the window, it's so, so it's good. so good. And 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 <laughs> and you're just like it's like a good two minutes. And then Catherine Harold, who maybe because she's been connecting with him, she's almost like less affected by it she runs in and she yanks off the you know the 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 cord to his head and it all stops Mm -hmm. and unfortunately everyone realizes that they're fine and that it was all an illusion 
Yeah, no, because you, you were definitely stoked to be like, oh, did that just like they even have the reverse shot of the glass being yeah. reformed. Which I was like, cool. I, I kind of expected them to leave. It's a cool shot, but I expected them to leave it broken so yeah. that there was some form of like unreality that they're all yeah. just like, what the fuck happened there? That's you know, Patrick, like something's happening. That's where Patrick, the, the film Patrick goes, goes the distance. He, he actually makes shit happen that it's not in people's minds. He's actually destroying people. Um, gotcha. But, but, but hey, as far as depicting that on screen, this is as cool and physical as it kind of gets from from Roger Christian. Like he directs the hell out of oh, these uh, visions that he's making um, people people have. Absolutely, uh, especially. Um, and and I will say, like it's pretty short. Like it it moves pretty fast from there. Like it's like you know it's it's Gail receiving phone calls from the mother in the middle of the night yeah. and being like, you know, he tried to kill you once, but it'll get worse. Believe me, I'm his mother, and he needs his mother. So like let him back. So so to the me. thing with the mother, and by the way, I mean you know it's it's no big mark against the film, but it's like as soon as you see her, you're like, okay, the mom's dead. She's not real. She's yeah, they Harrell. give away the whole ghostly aspect of her pretty quickly. If you pretty quick, like it's like if you've watched any other movie where it's revealed that they're not really there, um, yeah, it's pretty obvious <laughs> because the mom is talking to or rather, um, Geraldine, the mom played by Shirley Knight, mm-hmm. who's great. She's mm-hmm. even though it's like I wish she just give her like I don't know, give her another accent. Don't don't give her the uh, Piper Laurie. Uh, accent from Carrie. It's just a little too similar. But Catherine Harold's talking yeah. to her, and then Catherine Harold's like, let me get on the phone. And then, as it's an artful camera move, but as the camera shifts from both of them talking to just Catherine Harold on the phone, when it comes back, the mother's gone. And it's like, well, she couldn't have just left the room that quickly. She's obviously an, a, a ghost or a uh, apparition from pet from Patrick <laughs> from, from John Doe 83. So you kind of know that's coming the whole time. But um, at the same time, I guess the idea is that she wanted to kill him as a boy because she thought he was like a Jesus-like parthenogenesis baby who didn't have a father. So yes. he's haunted by her wanting to commit suicide, which kicks off the whole film. And then, and then he does it several, tries to do it again several times throughout the movie. So the, the goal is for Catherine Harold to prevent him from killing himself because she's yeah. protecting him from his, the, the, the apparition of his mother. Yeah, from from his own like self deluded conjuring of, of his, his mother, own mother right. who wanted to kill him. Like, yeah, it's actually strangely kind of convoluted uh, in terms of like the even though it, I do feel like it does like broadly makes sense. Like I was sitting, like I was yeah. watching it and you do have this, you know, vision, um, of him, like imagining himself dying in his dreams, which is that bit that we were talking about where she goes into her bedroom and he's like a mm-hmm. corpse, just like covered in rats yeah. and you get the rats like literally cool. coming out of his body. It's gross. It's great. Um, and then you also get this sort of like tragic, you know, a little bit of a monologue that he gets about, you know, how he, all he can remember from his amnesia is just like smelling gas and this, these feelings yeah, of that's pretty possibly chilling. being locked up by the mother, by the mother and possibly being abused. By, and by John yeah, like, Mueller, who was trying yeah. to do the Russia gay <laughs> report, but he kept trying to kill this kid. Uh, of course, of course. Yeah, no, no, and I, yeah it, it's, it's, it's an odd, it's an interesting villain, but they don't really, they actually don't really flesh her out enough. Like it's like, okay, she, yeah. she thought he was Christ-like. So she tried to kill him. It's kind of a motivation, but there could be a little bit more going on there. If, you know, and, if they spent more time. And I guess what they really do with the twist is really just reveal that she's dead because up until that no. point, you as an audience member could just assume she's dead or alive and that he's just, you know, um, uh, 
giving her these 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 illusions, this thought that she's actually talking to the mother, um, yeah. because you know he's instilling all of these other ideas inside her head and illusions. Yeah. So I guess the real twist for the audience member is that she's actually dead and not alive or dead. So it's which it's a, which, which is weak, okay, but yeah, it works. It, it's not it does that great, work. but. But you know what's great, though? And I wish they had almost done more with this, I don't know, somehow made the the the, the twist or the nature of his condition um, more based on this is the card scene where mm. she's asking well, him. He, I, I want, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you want to talk about that? Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to bring up before you went in the weird, another weird connection that I wanted to make that you might have done subconsciously between the ninth configuration, and the center, uh, that little steady cam shot around them all playing cards oh, with all the yeah. other patients in front of the ping pong table. Yep. I was like, dude, yep. I'm almost oh, yeah. certain that that same setup and shot was in the ninth configuration. And there's a cool because audio I guess, um, effect they do on that where everyone starts to get doubled and it's it's like kind of um, yes. echoed, which is which is really cool. It's there's not a lot made of it. It's just kind of a nice atmospheric thing. Um, but yeah, so so there's a scene halfway through where Catherine Harold is basically discovering like, no, you have telepathy. You're trying to you know uh, you know conjure your mother, and so she's she has a deck of cards and she's like, um, look at the card and I'll guess it from what you're sending out. You know, she's mm-hmm. not asking him to guess the card. She's saying you're sending so hard. I will know what it is by your brain waves. And so he picks up a card and she gets it wrong. She says it's a red card and it's actually a black card. And you're like, okay. And then another one and another one and another one. And at first you're like, oh yeah, I guess this, she's wrong. It's not working or he's preventing her. But then you start to realize every card she's calling is the opposite, you know, color or suit of what she's saying. So what he, what's really happening is he is using his brainwaves to stop her from guessing the right card. And at the end she goes, you know, 10 out of 10, zero. I got zero out of 10. Do you know what the odds are of that? It's the same thing as me getting a hundred, uh, getting me 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a, it's a work fun, for him. it's a clever little moment. It's, it's a fun little moment that I wish could have been turned into more about like, he can only send false images or I don't know, something a little more, a little bit more like interesting than just what we learned, which is that he, he's, he's telepathic and that's that. Um, yeah. because it was a fun, like fake out of, Oh, you think she's going to get all them right, but she actually gets all them wrong, which is also basically like, the same confirmation. Um, hmm. So there's, mm-hmm. there's, they try to play around with it a little bit, but eventually it just ends up that he's in a warehouse and his mom, or he's in a house and his mom is trying to kill him. And, you know, um, Catherine Harold is, is trying to get to him. I, I, I did want to say that another kind of link between uh, ninth configuration and this, I felt like the TV scene where I liked the TV scene yeah, quite a bit, too. honestly, where, where, where like the news report is saying that he's gone missing and everyone is calling him like a little mama's boy. Yeah. And he's, you know, and cause they're out looking for him and he starts smashing the TV. And it, I love the way in the soundscape that it just starts like replaying over and over again, the news report where it's like, if anyone has any information, 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 information. Yeah, information. Yeah. he's like freaking the fuck out over and over again. And then it's the maniacal laughter from the Messiah well, character pissing him off that causes him to like, like punch him in the head and like literally his knock off. his head right <laughs> yeah. off. Well, I was and then they have that say. red lighting sequence too <laughs> yeah. right after that too that kind of disappears yeah. as everything goes back to normal. So I was, was thinking cool. 
it, it felt a little bit like the scene in Ninth Configuration where Scott Wilson is being taunted by all the bikers. Like you have your yeah. mental patient who's being taunted. And now these are fellow inmates, I guess, but it, it felt kind of similar. Like you feel bad for him and he doesn't know what to do. And there's all these maniacs around him who are just like in a circle taunting him. It was a little bit of a, a little bit of a parallel uh, scene there. Mm-hmm. Except mm-hmm. someone gets well, their head and, blown and, and, off. Yeah, and it ends up really upsetting them because they find out that he's now sending uh, while he is like awake, like not just in his dreaming, not just subconsciously. He was intentionally trying to hurt people with it there, which is what leads to them doing. the. (laughs) Well, he's he's a little dangerous now. We need to do some last minute cranial surgery. Let's bump him up. Let's neutralize the part of his brain that gets his abilities working, I guess. I have to say, (laughs) so then they get a drill out and they're going to do, you know, they're going to do a lobotomy or whatever. But by the time they are drilling into his head, and then the room erupts in flames i I had to laugh because i was like at that point we've seen all this other shit happen including the amazing um you know uh electroshock therapy scene i'm just thinking like stop trying to crack into the kid's noggin it doesn't (laughs) go well it's not gonna work that's it's not gonna do anything good for you and then the whole room like explodes into his yeah. brain is definitely not going to do it if the shock therapy just did it and that was just like it, surface level you know it was almost like a comedy abuse. sketch where it's like well oh, i guess this time we're just gonna have to drill into his head and that's gonna fix it uh <laughs> yeah. and and so you know then it's and like i think this it, is the only time it actually becomes kind of more physical because i think he actually does yeah, his actual flames he does flames. set them on yeah. fire so yeah this they is should the kind have, of they should have done that, that unlocked, halfway through they should have like yeah. they should have escalated where the the um the electroshock actually makes people fly through the window. So he's becoming more powerful or more angry or whatever. And then by the end, you're like, Oh no, what the fuck's going to happen when they drill into his head physically? Instead, right. you're trained at that point to think, Oh, well, it doesn't really matter. Cause everything that happens always gets sucked back in to normalcy again. But then that mm-hmm. time it actually does create flames. So they could have maybe managed the escalation a little bit better, but, um, then Catherine Harold, um, you know, uh, saves him from his mom and it's kind of running yeah. out of steam. A yeah, he's, bit. he's guided by visions of his mother to like drive away from the hospital In back the to the house where he's going, yeah. he's going to go back and, and, and live with her and maybe, and uh, he does realize that like something is wrong with like the vibes with his mother in his house. And I, the, 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 the house set is, is pretty nice Creepy. that they, they, yeah, cool. they give for him there with, and he's turning on the gas and lighting the candle and he is doing it being like, you know, okay, I guess maybe I should leave now, ma. And you get the part where the mom is just like, well, where am I going to go? Yeah. And then he's like, what? And she's like, I said, where are you going to go? And he's like, that's not what you fucking said. Like, it's very clear that, you know, cause I, Again, the doctors were partially also trying to drill into his head because they found the mother's body having died of carbon monoxide poisoning at the house, which they then assume that he did and not that the mother did trying to basically like commit, you know, do a murder suicide with her own child, which he's trying to complete by bringing him back to the house. And it is cool. This is the only other moment of like just flagrant, I guess, sort of like using the powers for manipulation and even using sort of the visual manipulation of it as well, where like. Like the mother is, you know, slight changing of wording, slight changing, yeah. changing of like the way the where she sits in the house and everything like that. And he is she is trying to 
essentially get him to explode himself in the house. And there is this nice moment where she literally like invites him into the bed to like cuddle with her essentially. And he wakes up at the last second realizing that, holy shit, I'm falling asleep in a gas filled house next to a candle and my mother's not here. Like she's literally just trying to bait me into setting myself on fire. So Gail has to drag him out and save him from that. They they should have maybe been, it would have been better maybe if the mom is real or the first part of the movie and she's not like possibly a ghost because that, that shot where she disappears is like okay so the mom's not real but if she's still yes. alive yeah. if she's still alive at that point then mm-hmm. you do think she's real because she is and then they could have had her die halfway through the movie and so then from after that point you know that the mom is only a grotesque apparition but instead from the very beginning you're like okay the mom is a ghost or she she's a noxious you know influence yeah. and it would have been better if they'd kind of given you a concrete character like she she is alive and she's bad oh she's dead that's okay and the next time you see her like oh shit this means that she's in his mind um mm-hmm. but instead from the beginning you kind of already assume she's dead or that she's not really there but halfway through yeah they reveal that she's not alive and um and Catherine Harold Do you think Thomas her. Baum and his mom are okay I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure it's a healthy, it's a healthy dynamic. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This was meant as a critique. That's why she's not alive. He was trying to be like, this is how I envision my mother. It's not really her. That's troubling. It's not really her. But uh, with that (laughs) said. he explodes his childhood home. Yeah. He's he's working through some stuff too. The same as Blatty. (laughs) At the the very end, uh, (laughs) they're like watching the tape, like the doctors in the asylum are like, okay, he says he's better. And I have to say, um, I don't love the final shot. It's a little cheap. Um, you spend. I, I think once again, I think Christian almost just makes it work because it's pretty well directed. It like is. the actual tracking shot yeah, itself like into the, the car, the actual patience with the reveal of it and the, and the soundscape for it. Like I was sitting there going like the actual written piece. It should be like dumber and sillier than it is. But like the moment for me was actually still kind of strangely eerie i, you know I what, guess and, and kind of here's kind what of i effective. would say here's what i would say it would have been because basically why i don't think it was effective was like okay so we did all of that to get rid of the apparition of his mom and then what she's she's just still there it's like okay well then what, yep. what was any of that for it would have been better if she's alive no escape she's alive the whole movie and she mm-hmm. is alive in the house and then they burn the house down he physically kills he her but then she's still kill her, and then at the yeah. end <laughs> she's an apparition in his mind and that's like okay it's not the same thing she's transcended into a fully spiritual haunting of him as opposed yeah, it to like, be even worse just because now he can't escape yeah, her. Whatsoever, he can't escape her. Yeah. Whereas like in the movie itself, it's yeah, like, well, that was where we were half an hour ago. Who cares? Like she's just, yeah, she, there is a lot of there. rinse and repeat in this. Yeah. Um, as, as good mm-hmm. as like the direction is and the sequences are fun. And like, there's a, there's a lot of cool things to that watch. That explosion, the by the way, is really nice. It's really oh, good. It's awesome. And he knew that. Yeah. Christian <laughs> is just like, let me get 15 different shots of this giant fucking explosion. Cause there's yep. just yeah, so how many, many, how many cameras can Paramount get us? Yeah, it was, <laughs> I, I had to, I, anytime they, a director does that, they're just like, look, we have an explosion. We might as well just get as much as this thing as possible. Uh, so I really yeah. Well, the, that. that's why I think that this is this is kind of just like not particularly well thought out kind of pulpy material. Yeah. But it is just it is directed into a little bit of a weight class bigger than it is mostly just because again like even just the vision of like his overbearing mother like standing over top of them in the staircase is kind of a creepy image. The actual yeah. you know in the back of the ambulance watching the house explode what? like it's a huge what? explosion. It's beautiful. What would you have said if when I suggested these films that. You would think the direction from the guy who did 
Battlefield Earth was the strongest part of the sender. <laughs> it is shocking. I would, I would not have believed you. I would not have it's believed gonna you. It's going to be wild for me to see this, to see Battlefield after this now. Because I'm just going to be like, what What happened, brother? What I, I, happened? You're going you're gonna to see some insane choices made with the camera yeah. and even the set design and the co- and like everything about it. You're set just going to be like, there's too, no way. Because that was his thing. But like first. That's his thing? So it's just, it's bizarre to me. It's like, I just don't understand. It was like a, a bad couple months for creativity for him or something. Or maybe he did a lot <sighs> yeah. of people down his throat. I don't know. It just, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if he was carried by the cinematographer well, who's obviously very good. Yeah, or I like, good. But, but I don't know. There, there, there seems like there's good sharp choices being made like yeah. behind the well, camera in in the editing that brief cut to the mom in the window right before the house explodes yeah. solid mm-hmm. yeah let's, you know? let's, like that's something let's not forget the camera guy couldn't teach it let's not forget it was to state the obvious it was a scientology production and i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if christian was really not in charge you know what i mean like yeah yeah uh, there's a lot totally. going on there with every facet of that production that we just we don't know about and w- what a tragedy you know for him that he had well, like 20 attached. million dollars yeah. of the budget was like siphoned into something else uh, like i don't even remember I can't imagine what that was <laughs> yeah who, who knows? Sea Org, sea um, org uh, budget, you know, they, they bought a new boat to, to have people, uh, you know, do slave labor on. But yeah, I mean, like he the, he could have very well just been like under pressure, like, no, this needs to be more like Elrond's vision. You need more Dutch angles. It needs to feel more like a classic <laughs> sci-fi. Like, seriously, like the Dutch angles could have been Scientology. We don't know because he's clearly a good director. That's the that's the best part of the sender. Yeah, so. he, it is wild. To, like he's he's so far from talentless and um it's just I, yeah. I only know the reputation of Battlefield Earth, and it's just wild that this guy made this movie because yeah. it is good. He's the strongest part of it, I think. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, even stronger than the set designer location work, like the dreamy yeah. way the camera moves, the way how lush the music and soundscape for it all is. Like, there's this is a director's movie, which is will not surprise you when I tell you that. Briefly looking up the film, I found an interview with Roger. Uh, Christian from a little while ago where he basically said that he has been approached by Guillermo del Toro, George Miller and Tarantino who have basically all told him that like, this is one of their favorite films of the eighties. And it is literally just, I think because it's like, you can, you can see the direction. It's like the kind of film that a director would like it has. You get to see someone just through visual style, completely making like strong arming pulpy studio exploitation material into like an arty slow burn kind of thing. And, you know, he was fighting against producers to do that. So it's like Christian had good instincts, uh, especially too, because I read this briefly too. The producers wanted him to do a flashback structure where like a, like a straight up like show the ending explosion of the film or something mm. and do like a, I bet you're wondering how I got here type thing. <laughs> yeah. And Christian had to fight them like tooth and nail to be like, no, 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 you oh, need yeah. the, the you need, need the, the full trajectory. Yeah, you need the build. You need, you know, all of that. Yeah, and as anything, a result, if, if anything is driving you to finish it beyond the, the fun set pieces, it is what is this going to lead to? Like you, you can't already know that the house blows up with his mom yeah. that would ruin everything yeah yeah totally yeah well well and fighting with them so hard on it is what actually kind of led the film to bomb he, they gave it a very minuscule uh-huh. release it only got a limited release in the u.s in most of the world this was a direct-to-video film despite mm. the fact that it was a paramount production and quentin, you know starring a oscar-winning english filmmaker you know like uh, quentin tarantino also apparently prefers psycho 2 to the original Psycho, and Psycho 2 was directed oh. by Richard Franklin, uh, as we've already discussed. Uh, 
So he had a thing for these early eighties, um, psycho, psycho horror films. Um, they were kind of left behind. Yeah. That, that were left behind. Yeah. I mean, I, I love psycho two as well. I, I don't know if I, yeah, it's not better. Psycho two is amazing. It's not better than psycho. Cause how can you say that? No. But it, I, I prefer watching it to psycho mm. because it's just fresher, you know, like I've, I haven't seen it the thousand times I've seen psycho in one <laughs> right, way or another, yeah. like culturally and, and personally. And I love psycho too. Like it had no right to be as good as it was basically. So I, I can see Tarantino yeah. really liking it. And yeah, I mean, sender, um, yeah. Yeah. This is the, this is now turning into a sequel episode was our episode with will, where we talked exorcist three and psycho two. Cause those are the other well, two we've, movies. We've, we've decided that, uh, yeah. figures <laughs> is the real exorcist too. We've, we've, we've made that canon. That's right. Yeah, definitely. We've, we've, uh, we've, we figured it all out. But yeah, I think um, pivoting towards reductive rating round here on uh, Sender, this one actually, because I, I've, I've seen now three Roger Christian films, I got to give this one, I think, the solid three, despite some of the shortfalls oh, yeah. Yeah. of the... Uh, yeah. Of, of the material like again it's just like he he really does will this into being a stronger film almost purely um on on direction and it, it does predate the two movies i wanted to most compare it to which was firestarter and nightmare on elm street yeah. yeah like he beat them to those sequences and these you know the same kind of stuff so i was like you know what you know for a for a production that was born from a studio trying to cash in on a trend and just picking a guy who had never directed a feature film before to do it, this is probably some of the strongest results you could have got into those circumstances. Yeah, Christian uh, just wouldn't let it happen. Like he was like, I have at least some of a vision here, and even though we're doing I have some a ambition, cash in, I'm you know, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna direct the hell out of this. <laughs> Yeah, so so some of the performances and some of the eventual dramatic turns, I think, are a little stiff, and it yeah. does have a few dull expository passages yeah. of stuff where it, it does feel like it's repeating things that you already know, or it's not giving you enough physical consequences, or it's you know sort of ill conceived in terms of um, you know uh, giving you those kinds of payoffs to are these characters just ghosts is any of this happening but again christian the dreamy eerie look of it uh the the you know the score is you know way above what it should be beautiful and yeah yeah it does it does a pr together they do a pretty good job of giving this the supernatural horror angst i think that they are uh looking for again that opening wide crane shot that turns into a close-up drowning shot in a single camera movement yeah incredible and the surreal vision sequences themselves are quite strong and quite gruesome both the driving ones the electroshock therapy ones like the zero gravity moment just kind of like blew my mind while i was watching Definitely. it so i was like and again so it's purely on a directing level i can absolutely see why this you know has a bit of a, a cult following that it has especially among people who are directors and who yeah. are like impressed by that so uh yeah this was a, a three for me yeah i'm i'm right there with you i think uh roger christian you know for what his reputation uh seems to be because of battlefield earth i i think he knocks it out of the park in this in the sense of directing i think the writing is a little bit on the weaker side. Um, mm -hmm. but I do still kind of feel like, you know, uh, maybe bombs quarrels with his family and specifically <laughs> mother. Uh, so that is interesting to dive into, but the, the most interesting, yeah, there, aspects, there's some feeling in there for sure. Yeah. And I, but I do think the most interesting aspects, aspects, excuse me, of this is, um, just watching things that are a precursor to the things that we love, especially that are so huge in pop culture, specifically nightmare on Elm street. Um, and for mm -hmm. me, there was even like that bathroom sequence reminded me of uh, it uh, with um, uh, mm -hmm. Beverly uh, when she's seeing the blood and no one else can see it and all of that. And I'm not sure what the timeline would be like when it was released, but 
Um, I know the film that itself, was 90, the TV film, I didn't think, come out until right? the 90s. That, that was so, years yeah. later. Yeah, so I think like a decade mm. later. So that was kind of cool to see. And uh, there's a, a, a ton of examples of this, of that in this movie. And I think that that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I don't have too much to add. I, I just think uh, the, the screenplay co- probably could have been tightened a little bit or just made more interesting with a little bit more of uh, mystery when it came to the reveal of the mother because it does seem to be a really big part of the story. Um, and it's fairly obvious the way that it's directed what's yeah. going to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, solid performances. Um, nothing that super stands out, but I do think that Harold and Ivanak are, are quite good together. Um, so yeah, solid three. I'm going to echo you guys. I, I think it's a three. Uh, if it If it were what most filmmakers would have produced that is to say a carry knockoff it would probably be at best you know a two or a two two and a half but mm. i think there's some extra special sauce here that brings it outside of that i mean um i think i i, I don't know i don't have it in front of me i think patrick had been made um in the meantime so i it probably owes a little bit to another movie where there's a te- telekinetic guy in a hospital bed um, yeah, Patrick was 1978, which also oh, okay. was coming out around the same time. So, as, so Carrie, um, Carrie was the this was craze. the original, but then Patrick was kind of a, a an evolution on that, and this is an evolution an evolution on both of them. So it's it's incorporating other. Yeah, and scanners came out one year before the sender, and and you know we got a great head not explosion but head head decapitation in this one. Um, That's true. So it's 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 incorporating a lot of other influences beyond just a, another te- telekinetic teen thing. And as you guys said, great direction. I, I really like the performances. I think it's right mm. smack dab in the middle of the film. There's that awesome set piece of the, um, of the electroshock zero gravity uh, massacre, which kind of had me leaning in just with a big smile on my face, which is what happens when I'm watching a horror movie. I don't get scared. I just lean in with a perverse grin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's when I know I'm enjoying it. And um, yeah, I, I also agree could have been a more original script. Thought the mother stuff was way too predictable. But ultimately, you know, you're watching it for the style and the panache they bring to the set pieces. You're not necessarily expecting a completely original um, horror or um, psychological thriller. Um, and so let's resuscitate, you know, a little bit of the Roger Christian uh, reputation. Uh, hopefully maybe in 10 years or 20 years, people remember him for this and not for battlefield earth. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let's go, let's go down the rabbit hole. He did a Nostradamus movie in 19. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. It looks yeah. kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah. He did another, uh, starship from 1984. No one I know has seen this. So I'm, I might, I might have to see if there are there. Wait, he did a Joseph and Mary movie with, with, with Lawrence Bain. And what is this? He did like a pure flicks movie. Okay. All right. We need to go down the rabbit hole. We need to see what went down with him. And also I want to go down the Thomas bomb rabbit hole yeah. a little bit. Also having seen uh, night visions. Um, oh yeah. Mostly because I am eyeing this movie called secret weapons from 1985 directed by Don Taylor, who did escape from the planet of the earth uh, or planet of the apes, as well as uh, the omen Two, uh, Damien. Um, this movie secret weapons it's the Soviet high school girls are sent to the U S where they are taught to become secret agents and use sex to find information. Uh, oh, hell yeah. Let's Starring go. Linda Hamilton. Oh, wow. 
Another wow. connection. Uh, by the way, I just have to say, whether he directed The Sender or not, um, Roger Christian, as the um, production designer on Alien, that's an immortal position. I mean, Alien is obviously oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. one mm-hmm. of the most most uh, amazing horror films, sci-fi, sci-fi films ever, and so much of that is owed, and increasingly, every year that goes by, I, I realize less and less is owed directly to Ridley Scott. Uh, so much is owed to everyone else who worked on that on that movie. Yeah, the, the art direction on that specifically I mean, is like one of my favorite so parts of it. Roger Christian, the design work. don't let the bastards get you down with the <laughs> Battlefield Earth shit. Just pretend it didn't happen. You did the alien production design. No one can take that away from you. It was, let, yeah. let's, just, just, let's just pretend it was, uh, we may not even Scientology be directed Battlefield Earth. Let's get <laughs> yeah. that credit changed. It was Tom Cruise's <laughs> first, first, first direction, <laughs> first director position. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's have that be canon, but yeah, no. So, I mean, the sender, uh, fun, uh, de- definitely watch it. It, yep. it. it also reminded me of the very opening scene. Beaches are hard to make scary. I don't know if you guys have done dead and buried. <laughs> I watched that recently. Um, we have yeah. incredible. Movie. Now that's yeah, really like, that, that's more like a three and a half or four for me, but, um, uh, yeah. an, another, and, and, and a scarier opening, but another, it kind of got, I got a little bit of that in the beginning of this, you know, it's like, it's like this placid environment that suddenly becomes very menacing. And it reminded me a little bit of the opening of dead and buried. So it's, you know, he worked, yeah. he worked with, you know, a kind of modest script and turned it into something really fun. So, uh, yeah, I really liked Absolutely. the sender. Yeah. Me too, me too. And I think that that uh, will wrap it up for uh, this week. That was the ninth configuration uh, from 1980 as well as the sender from 1982. Thanks so much, uh, Brendan, for for joining us finally and bringing bringing these uh, films with you. Thank you, these guys. It was a yeah. real pleasure. It was a real pleasure to talk about them with Yeah, you. and thanks for going along with us and going crazy. I'm <laughs> sure everyone will appreciate the uh, in-depth uh, ninth configuration uh, background. It took us about half an hour before we addressed what the plot of that movie <laughs> they was. Might, so. They might I'd be surprised that uh, uh, another podcaster talked a lot uh, as a guest, yeah. but uh, yeah, you know, I yeah. what can I say? I I love I love the ninth configuration, and I was also pleasantly surprised by the sender. So we had a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, this is the part of the show where we usually have you uh, plug anything mm-hmm. that you got going around while you're here. Do you guys have some blowback stuff you can talk about, or you can't talk about any of it yet? We are um, in production of season four, which I think people know. We've we well, if you don't know now, you know. Yeah, but you've been teasing it. Uh, yeah, we've <laughs> been teasing it. You know, follow me at uh, deep underscore beige on Twitter or Noah at uh oh, he's gonna hate me i don't remember his handle but just search noah just search <laughs> noah Cohen. listen listen to noah's episode he says it over there okay, good. yeah <laughs> go 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 listen to that one again and also we're at blowback pod on twitter and, and and instagram now um and season four is in production uh, our first season was about the iraq war our second season was about the secret war on cuba and the third season we just did last year was about the korean war and this season coming up this summer will be about the long war the multiple wars, the saga of Afghanistan and the United States perverse relationship with that country. Um, we're going to go from us creating the Mujahideen and Al Qaeda and the Taliban all the way to the Bush and Obama 
war in Afghanistan and, and, and everything in between. So everyone will be very stoked when you get to uh, de glamorize the uh, part of Rambo three that everyone loves to screen. Cap well, and share you on know, Twitter, like once every, well, few you months. know, we'll talk about that <laughs> off air uh, because yeah. uh, <laughs> you guys probably know what I know about that, but um, yeah. it, it, it is, uh, it's going to be a great season. We're working on it right now. It's gonna be really fun. Um, I wish I could talk about some other things we have in the can, um, which are just too early to talk about, but there's some possibly very fun stuff that we're cooking up. So, you know, um, I'll just leave that there in case anyone is a, is already a fan that we are, um, oh, we're yeah. very excited. We're, we're, Hey, as a listener myself, I will be waiting. If only you, uh, we're not slowing down. I'll put it that way. So, uh, if, if you want to listen to, um, the first three seasons, they're on Spotify, they're on Apple music there or podcasts or whatever you listen to. Uh, if you sign up at blowback.show, you get, uh, ad free versions of the seasons and some goodies, some, uh, 30 bonus episodes and um uh some extra stuff as well so um you know see, see how much you like it and then sign up if you want more and yeah we'll we'll keep everyone in, in posted on on when the season's coming out but it's going to be this summer that sounds great can definitely recommend going out and checking all of that out and uh for our listeners in one week's time we are going to be back with your patron voted episode and as jamie alluded to at the top of the show you guys picked a long episode <laughs> which jamie will be collecting some heads for because right. we you know we we like it when you guys give us the 90 minute bangers uh that make our list. week very easy but next week you guys were like nope we want to hear about the parallax view as well as oliver stone's jfk ah. so uh we are going to be doing that classic double feature i actually don't think that we have done oliver stone yet so it is going to somehow it's just yeah, kind it of a us. I've had a couple can Oliver I, Stone episodes lined up. Can, can, can I tell you guys a very brief t- tidbit? Uh, Go ahead. Right up to that was that when we were doing blowback season two, um, if it intrigues anyone to hear, we eventually have to touch upon the JFK assassination in that season because it's so linked up with the Cuba um, uh, saga uh, and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. figures that surrounded the attempts to overthrow the Cuban revolution and Fidel Castro. I remember listening to that episode. Uh, and one of the guys we interviewed is, is a really great guy. He, He's actually half a scholar about movies, half a scholar about JFK. Um, and his name is uh, Joseph McBride. Uh, he wrote a great book about Frank Capra. But he also has uh, broken some news, actually, about JFK and, and uh, George H.W. Bush's possible connection to the CIA uh, that was not known about uh, before he was director, that is. Anyway, the point is, is that when we were talking to him, he gave us a little tidbit where he said when uh, Pacula, right, uh, Alan Pacula mm. was filming All the President's Men, Someone said, you know, Bob Woodward, who, you know, we're making this movie about, apparently he was, apparently he was part of the, uh, uh, you know, naval intelligence, kind of maybe part of the nexus of American intelligence with the CIA and, and some of these groups. And Pacula apparently said, uh, yeah, I know I've read about that, but I can't think about that right now or I will lose my mind. So while he was <laughs> while while he was directing that movie, like lionizing Woodward and Bernstein, he had to also hold in his head the fact that Woodward uh, has some shady points on his resume that may indicate he was not just a journalist, uh, totally separated from the institutions Pacula's pointing the finger at in that film. Uh, so it's it's one of those things in American Damn. politics, which believe me, Noah and I have bumped up against as well. You know, we have to find sources and and you know, kind of pick through uh, the uh, the every little nook and cranny um, yep. 
but that's a great dude. That's a great double feature. Um, the Pacula and the, uh, yeah, the patrons JFK. wanted it. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And it is going to open the floodgates to us to do a little bit more of, uh, Oliver stone, which we will be doing actually two weeks after, uh, as well, well. but the, uh, so that that's over exclusively on the Patreon next week. And then in two weeks time, we have a special guest, uh, joining us and we are going to be going Clint Eastwood mode. We are going to be talking yes. about the Iger sanction, which I th- is 1975, 1976, uh, one of his, uh, directed thrillers about him going mountain climbing to, uh, hunt down a assassin or to assassinate someone. And the, uh, uh, mountain climbing footage that they got uh ended up killing one of the climbers and uh, we will t- <laughs> well, i don't remember if jamie's seen that one or not so not. it's pretty insane mountain climbing footage uh and we will we will talk about that story um wow. and uh we're going to be pairing that with uh in the line of fire oh, directed by Wolf yeah. gang peterson uh who uh recently passed away actually so it was we, we kind of realized we hadn't done wolfgang peterson yet and it kind of made sense and it's a little bit later in uh clint's career as well so get to see some more age 90s lines on his face so yeah we're going to be talking about uh clint eastwood in two weeks time over on the main feed so uh look forward to that but that being said that wraps it up for everything this week thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy keep it sleazy